0: Welcome to episode 6 of the AWS What's Next podcast, in which hosts Nick Walsh and
1: Robert Zhu share the latest news and launches from Amazon Web Services. This episode features Amazon Honeycode, AWS Solutions Constructs and Amazon Recognition Video for Media Analysis.
2: Hey everyone, how's it going? We are back with yet another episode of AWS What's Next, the show where we bring you the latest and greatest features and launches from the folks here at Amazon Web Services. We have an action-packed episode, I feel like I say this every single episode, every single time we get on air, but like... Hopefully, by the end of it, you will you will see this yourself. Before we get into any of the business of today, you're probably wondering who the uh, people in front of you are. My name is Nick Walsh, one of the co-hosts of the show, and I'm a developer advocate here at AWS.
0: Yeah, and I'm Robert Zhu, developer advocate for AWS. And this is the sixth episode. We've uh, For those of you joining us who've seen one of the previous episodes, you know what this is all about. But if this is the first time tuning in, you're in for a treat because... I agree with Nick for once that this is uh, this is an exceptional episode. You know, I, I, I usually reserve that word. Um, but this one, you know, it's very exciting. I'm not going to spoil it, but we're, we're going to be diving deep into several major announcements that we've made across the board this week. So I really hope you enjoy this episode.
2: Yeah. For those that are new to the show, or maybe you've caught the tail end of some of the other ones, we love launches. I think that would probably be sort of intuitive based on what we've covered so far, but we also understand that... Launches are more than just telling you what a product is, uh, the problem it's solving, telling you a little bit about it, maybe even telling you the experience of using it. There's, it's just another level to be able to get to use it hands-on, see it demoed, and actually understand what it's going to look like for it to be in your hands when you want to use it. And that's what we're all about here. We're going to bring on different service team members from each of these launches. We're going to actually go through using these various launches today. I know I keep talking in general, generalities, Rob. Uh, we have a quick news segment, and then we're going to get into the first of of, of three launches today. But why don't we give the folks at home uh, something to look forward to? Let's, let's, uh, let's let the cat out of the bag, let them know what, what we're going to be covering today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, sounds perfect. So uh, first up, we're going to be talking about Honeycode. This is our solution for business users uh, to build mobile and web applications and to push them and authorize them and secure them and share them on the fly. It, I cannot possibly do this justice. We have a demo lined up with uh, Gavin from the product team. And he's going to be taking you through exactly what it's going to look like uh, to use Honeycode. And then we have uh, Amazon Recognition Video for media analysis. And what this is going to do is enable you to basically streamline a lot of really manual processes around video editing, video manipulation. And we think that if you're in the video space at all, this is going to make sense. It's going to click instantly. And then finally... And of course, not least, we have AWS Solution Constructs. So for all those, those of you who are uh, more familiar with the uh, CLI or the SDK, and you're, you're, uh, you like um, the, the ways to interact with AWS that allow you to define infrastructure as code, this is going to be very exciting because it's a set of extensions on top of the CDK that give you kind of um, templates and, and formula, if you will, to kind of assemble this immutable this infrastructure. So these are all just ex- incredibly exciting announcements, and we have great demos for each of them today.
2: Yeah, exactly. And in particular, on Honeycode, I know there, were, there was a lot of buzz around it. No pun intended there. Uh, when, it, when it launched, there's a lot of materials around it. But again, we're going to be going through actually what it looks like to build an application from end to end using Honeycode in a little bit. And some of the other demos were, were eye-opening to me as well that we'll get later on in the segment uh, around some ancillary materials and and open source code that actually enables you to use them even easier. I know I'm talking in general generalities, and it will make much more sense when we get there. With that being said, let's uh, let's get on with the news. Again, we talk about launches here. If it was up to us, we'd run for a 12-hour show. We'd just be be getting fed and I'd be able to give you demos all day. But unfortunately, that's not the case. So let's get to the news segment. These are some of the launches that we, Rob and I picked out. We thought they were quite impactful. Fortunately, we won't have demos for them today, but we figured it may have been easy to miss them. So first up in that, in that suite of uh, news offerings is going to be AWS announcing AWS Snowcone. Uh, this one was a fun one for me. There were some really cute videos around the launch of it uh, with with Jeff Barr and some of the other folks that that are involved in the production of the device. But largely, Snowcone is this edge compute storage and essentially extension of your cloud that is highly resilient. So, Snowcone, for those that may not have seen it, it it's small. It's about the size of maybe a tissue box. It is the smaller sibling to the Snowball, which is maybe the size of a guitar case, roughly. And so these are typically used in scenarios where maybe you need uh, extremely low latency computing, you need the device to exist at edge, or maybe you exist in extremely harsh conditions, uh, or you're devoid of, you know, persistent internet connection, like maybe out in ag tech scenarios, really cool stuff, making it even smaller, making it even more cost effective, I think, uh, one of the biggest things for me, really excited to have this be available. I think it costs around $300. The biggest use case I think folks are going to see for it is if you're trying to transfer a large amount of data, there is a break-even threshold where it quite literally becomes cheaper to buy a snow cone and transfer it onto that device and use that to get it up onto the cloud. Yeah. Next up, we
0: have Lambda with support for Elastic File System, EFS, and this is generally available. And what this means is that now your Lambda functions have another way to persist a state. Lambda, of course, is our serverless code uh, function as a service, and what you can do with Lambda and why it's been so popular is because you can just upload code and not worry about the underlying infrastructure. Uh, you know, is it containerized? Is it running what do you have to patch the operating system? We handle all of that for you, which makes it very powerful for certain types of architectures. But one of the things that developers have to learn anew with Lambda is how do you persist state because these Lambda instances can go away at any time. So do you talk to a cache? Do you talk to a database? Do you talk to a file system? And... I think this is one of the perfect examples of how we've been listening to customer feedback. You know, got heard from customers for a long time that they want a seamless way to kind of attach a dynamic file system. And we've had that solution for EC2 for a long time. And finally, we're able to uh, uh, bring that to them, the users.
2: Awesome. Yeah, next up, we also have uh, Amazon Database Migration Accelerator now available. Essentially, this solves the problem for a lot of folks that are trying to or have accepted that they want to migrate databases from whatever they are on to the destination they're trying to arrive at. Uh, And there's a lot of concerns around how to do that securely, quickly, and in a cost-effective manner. And so we have tools previous to this, like Database Migration Service. But Database Migration Accelerator is essentially the white glove service where you will get AWS experts who can come in, assess your migration pattern, your existing database structure, uh, and make sort of this tailored recipe for your migration pathway from your origin database to your destination. There are a handful of, uh, inter- of pairings for source and targets that are available at launch here, uh, being you know Oracle to SQL Server or Aurora, or RDS with uh, MySQL or Postgres. But it says right there in the launch blog post,
0: that I think should be available in chat, that there will be further integrations uh, in the coming months. Yeah, and then I want to talk about AWS Deep Composer, uh, we have a new feature for Deep Composer called ChartBusters. This is a monthly challenge. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Deep Composer, this is our AI-based music synthesis program. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, it uses uh, something called a generative adversarial network, which is machine learning lingo for uh, something that's really fancy and produces incredible results with very little data. And so if you haven't checked this out, if you're at all interested in the space of music synthesis, now there's even more incentives to jump in because what ChartBusters is, is this feature that that... We're going to be running this monthly challenge where developers can submit their entries. And we have a chart of of top-ranking uh, music that people have produced using Deep Composer. And this is a, a way to showcase the work that the community has been doing. So if you haven't looked at it, this is a great time to jump in. If you have looked at it, then
3: I hope you participate.
2: Yeah. Uh, self-plug here, we actually had the Deep Composer team on around the launch of uh, or the general availability of Deep Composer. So that was very exciting. We got some demos Seeing it in action, again, the combination of the keyboard and the the software uh, in the cloud. (laughs) I was going to joke that generative adversarial networks could be another way to describe our partnership, Rob. But then when you started talking about producing great results, I was like, eh, I don't know, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, I don't don't know,
0: (laughs) great results.
2: (laughs) 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 That's that's for chat to decide. But uh, last but certainly not least, before we get into the demos, we have the final order of business in the news segment, and that is the Amazon Builder's Library, which is a collection of uh, articles, uh, recipes, and essentially guidance to abiding by well-architected principles in a more prescriptive form, a litany of these resources. We launched this at reInvent 2019. Now, the newest launch here for the Builder's Library is a new article for safe hands-off deployments, Uh, essentially being able to build more consistent deployments that behave the way that you want, that have uh, healthy fallback patterns and will fail less. I don't know anyone who would not be interested in those things, and I know that there was a lot of really hard work that went into those posts. So check them out, and hopefully you'll be able to bring a learning or two from there into your stacks at your, at your companies. Whew, that, was, that was quick, Rob. Five, five news topics in like under 10 minutes. Man, we're getting good at this. Yeah, we're on street all right. Cool. Well, one thing that we are not on a streak with is being able to have a demo from a product that is launching for the first time. I believe on our show, like that is that is bit of a first. Well, start of a streak. Yeah. Yes. No. Maybe. I
0: I think so. I think this one uh, we will see. I know this 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 one. I'm personally very excited about because there's a lot of stuff that I want to see in the demo. And we'll be pushing our guests to do this. But but I am. I just can't, let's let's do this because I I don't know how we can do this justice without just showing you. Um, but I will say, I will remind you for those of you just tuning in, this is live. One of the great things about this format is that you can ask questions in LinkedIn, which, and we'll make sure that those questions get forwarded to appropriate people on the team who can help you answer those questions. Some of those questions that we think are are very common, we'll ask the guests directly and we might even turn that into discussion topic. So please take advantage of the format.
2: Yeah, well, uh, the exciting thing of this session, which is going to be Amazon Honeycode, before we get into any of the details, joining us is Gavin G., Head of Product Management over at Amazon Honeycode. Gavin, thank you for taking the time to join us today.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. It's exciting to be here and share what we've got today.
0: Gavin, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show and talk to you. Uh, Now We spoke briefly about this before, but before we dive in, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, about the product.
4: Yeah, certainly. Um, we've got a lot to cover, so I don't, I don't want to take too much time from uh, take away from actually showing the folks. But I thought I'd share a little bit about kind of who I am, what the product is. So, as you say, Gamaji, I've been on the team now for a couple of years, and we've been building this product called Honeycode. And uh, I will promise today to try and avoid using the code names because it's getting used to using the public name these days. Um, so it may slip, but uh, we're excited to build this new service that is really targeting business users. It, we launched it this week, and it's, it's had really quite a great uh, set of feedback from customers so far.
3: Awesome. So,
4: with that, why, why don't we jump in, right?
3: Yeah, let's get into it. Again, while
2: Gavin's oh. getting that set up, if anyone is, uh, has any questions at any point during the broadcast, again, live show on both LinkedIn and Twitch. Get those questions in the chat. We'll be watching, and we'll try to get those answered
3: on stream.
4: Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so we've jumped in. Let's, let's jump right in. So... We started on this journey in good Amazon style by really kind of listening to customers. And frankly, we spent a lot of time also talking to internal Amazon users because they face a lot of issues in their day-to-day when it comes to productivity. Like we're we're a fast, agile company moving quickly, and we want to uh, understand kind of the pain points that those folks had and see what sort of tools that we could bring to bear to improve their team productivity. And there were kind of three things that really jumped out in terms of kind of team dynamics today. One is that business needs are continuously evolving. Like how a team operates this week, actually in four weeks from now, they're on to new projects, their needs have evolved, their needs have changed. And frankly, the, the the existing tool sets that teams are using just isn't keeping up with that ever-changing landscape. And the reality of that is that teams have then been trying to use either kind of off-the-shelf software as tooling to help them, be it you know, custom project management software, event management tools, task-tracking tools. And collectively, like they're all great, but they're not perfect. And uh the real problem is is that then that creates a need where these business teams then turn around to their technical teams and say, Hey, I need some help. And unfortunately that just creates such a problem in backlog and IT. It's like I'd love to build you that tool. I just simply don't have the time, the budget, the money, the manpower, um, the, the people to make that happen. And so business teams are really left kind of standing and not being as productive as they, they could be. Um, and so it's really based on that that uh, we set out on this vision of, of, of bringing Honeycode to market. And it was all about how do we empower those business users to essentially build their own apps, their own tools, to really solve their team's productivity challenges. And we didn't want to stray too far from this idea of, like, it's business users. This isn't really about empowering folks who are already really great technical folks who can use the full power of things like AWS. Right. This is about, I'm a program manager. I sit in a business. Maybe I'm managing a project. Maybe I'm managing, uh, I'm a marketer and I'm managing a, a video production shoot. And I've got all these files that I want to move around. There's stakeholders working on projects. How do I keep track of that stuff? And like, how I do it as a team is very different from how another team in another company does that. Um, and so how do I build the right sort of tools to enable those sorts of people? And these kind of program managers, marketers, business analysts, they kind of have four key traits they really care about. One, they they really want to be able to stay in the loop of what's going on. Two, we know that people are more and more mobile, and so they want the ability to get access to data that's live updated on their mobile devices. And that's a challenge there. A lot of the tools are great maybe on the, on the Mac or the PC, but they don't work great on the mobile device. And customers have become so familiar with the great experience of apps on mobile devices but when it comes to the kind of team business tools, they've been left a little of one At the same time, they want to personalize that experience. As I said, teams', teams needs are, are rather unique. And then there is way too much manual process in, in, in businesses. And so any ways that we can help teams automate and improve those processes just gives time back to people and just to focus on more high-value items. Um, and so those were kind of core four capabilities that we wanted to bring to the product. And that's where we came out with uh, the capabilities of Hunter. And so kind of pivoting back to this idea of a business user who's familiar with a certain set of tools today, we wanted to go where and enable them with the skills that they have. And so number one of that is that we wanted to go with their skills with spreadsheets. Spreadsheets are very ubiquitous in business, and we wanted to leverage the, the skills that people have in that space to use them to manage the data that they have. And so with that, inside of Honeycode, we have kind of four key capabilities to enable people to build out. One, we have tables. They act like spreadsheets. They are like spreadsheets. But they're actually a lot more than spreadsheets. Because we've brought new innovations there to enable them to actually operate like a database in a live, updating, and performant way. And so we can do things like joining data together that you could do in a database, but using the visual, spread, uh, the visual user interface of a spreadsheet. Uh, we've invested in building a new app builder that really is a new visual editor that enables business users to build the user interface of apps and how they want to use apps in their business environment. And it's the combination of building the user interface in the app builder and connecting it to data in a spreadsheet that really powers the magic of Honeycomb. Thirdly, we've got an automation capability that is all about how can I build, simple to build, or automations that match the processes that I want to build for my apps, that match my business process. And then finally, we wrap that all around this concept of teams. In that the way that people are operating in organizations is the boundaries of what a team is, is is continuously evolving. It's not as rigid as it perhaps once was. Like as I sit in, let's say I go back to my example of working on a uh, video production shoots, like who I work with could span across multiple organizations. And so what my definition of a team is there changes, and it changes depending on the project that I'm on. And so we use this idea of teams to say, hey, I as a user can be part of multiple teams, and there's probably going to be, therefore be a set of data and apps that are associated to those teams that I want to collaborate with people inside of those teams. And so we use that core concept of teams as the really kind of grounding starting point to get started with honeypot so that's probably enough of me talking to slides and getting stuck into this. So why don't we jump in and, and see what this thing actually looks like?
2: Yeah, I, I think this is what everyone's been waiting to see. I mean, I know I have, right? Because it's one thing to tell me that like, hey, we've created an experience that makes something easy for you. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll believe it when I see it, right? Like, I'm great that's, that, that we have pitched that. But um, I, there were some screenshots in the Jeff Barr blog post. What are you gonna be able to show us today, Gavin?
4: Well, I'm going to try and show you a a super nuts end-to-end experience of building an app. And I'm going to show you how that happens inside of a team that I sit in. And actually, Nick and Rob are in the team with me. I've already invited them. And we're going to go through this process of building an app. And I'm going to show you really how simple it is. I'm going to show you a number of ways to do the same thing. But I'm not going to cover this up with wizards and some of the, the features in the product that make it even easier. I'm going to show you this in its raw form, like like building it component by component, just so you get a sense of what it takes to build that.
0: Awesome. And just for everybody who's watching, this is launched. If you sign up for Honeycode today, you can do everything that we're doing. Is that right, Gavin?
4: That's right. I am using an account. I'm not using my Amazon account. I'm using uh, an account that I signed up on the public service we, we, we launched this week. So everybody can go to uh, honeycode.aws and sign up for account and get started.
0: Yeah. So this is not vaporware. Just I, I feel like that needs to be repeated because I think what you're going to show us is going to be very compelling and people are going to naturally wonder, well, hold on, what are the smoke and mirrors? And if, if I understand you correctly, you're saying there are no smoke, smoke and mirrors. This is how easy it is.
4: Yeah. This, this, this is completely live. This is the real service. And so you're going to see, one, my terrible typing. You're going to see me go, hang on, where did <laughs> I move that button to? Yeah. You're going to see this for real.
0: Okay. I can't wait. <laughs>
4: Alrighty. Why don't we, why don't we jump in here? So, once folks have signed up for an account, they're gonna land in part of the product called, uh, the home drive or the buy drive. And so here I've logged into the service. I've got a few, uh, uh items listed here. So I'm gonna walk you through a little bit of kind of just some of the landscapes the so people are grounded in, kind of some of the components that are going on here. So, one of the core ideas of, of Honeycode here is that we have teams. And so teams are actually listed down the left-hand side here. So I can hop over to the team, and I can show uh, my team here. Uh, So everybody who signs up for Honeycode has created their own team, okay? And in this particular team is myself, and I've actually added Nick and Rob to my team. And you can see here, everybody who signs up gets a free account with the ability to add 20 users, okay? Where we also where we have caps and where there are additional offers that above that, if you want more than 20 20 users, you can add. Uh, additional users, um, and if you need more data inside of your workbook. And I'm going to explain what a workbook is in a minute. But this is the, the homepage where you can control that. And if you're part of multiple teams, you're going to be able to see that in the system. So have got this idea of a team, and I'm showing all of the workbooks and apps of my team. Well, what's a workbook? What's an app? How does this all hang together? So a workbook really is, think of it as the single unit that combines all of the data, all of the apps, and all of the automations for a particular project. So uh, I'm going to show you today just building a very simple task to-do list type of experience. Okay? And so uh, I've actually got three workbooks listed here. I have already got a to-do workbook. I've got a PO approvals workbook and a, uh, a workbook called Am I on a Call? And below a couple of them, I have a few apps. And so you can have multiple apps per workbook, actually as many as you want. And it's important then that you've got this idea that you create this Distinction that you could share apps with different people, even though they're inside of the same workbook that has the same data. And we'll come back to a little bit of how security and users and apps and all that stuff works later once you get a sense of this. But I just wanted to ground you in some of this. Here. So, how do I go get started, right? Let's jump right in. So, I can create workbooks in a couple of ways. I can click the create workbook button. I can start from scratch. I can import a CSV file. So, if you've got data existing in a spreadsheet, I can drop it in. Um, obviously, if I start from scratch, I can copy and paste data in as well. Or I can also use a template. And so there's a collection here. We're going to grow this list. This is just the starting. This is uh, uh, the first week out. We're going to add more templates to the service. And one of the, the workbooks that I've already got came from one of the templates here. that PO approval. But I've actually uh, created a workbook. So I'm going to jump in. And I, I did a little bit of editing just to speed things up today. But I'm going to hop straight in into this particular workbook. So when I first log in, I see here the... The, the sheet view. And so I see tables uh, of data. There's nothing in here. I just created a couple of column headers, so we have task, status and owner, and I'm going to build a to-do list today. Uh, on the left nav here, I have a menu. if I click, I can see the tables that are in my workbook. I have two tables, status and task. I have no app yet, and I have no automation. OK. So the first thing generally you do is you build out a little bit of your data model, okay? And so I'm going to start off with by actually just putting a little task list in Honeycode here. This is where you get to see some of my typing. I'm gonna copy and paste some data in, just real quick. And so I've added some very rudimentary simple tasks, nothing, nothing too fun, uh, run, read a white paper, cook some dinner, iron some clothes, you know, it, making it up as we go, right? And what's typical in this tough use case is you've got a bunch of items, I want to see maybe some status against them and maybe who's on, on task to do this, right? Now, with Honeycode, I can start to build some of this connectivity between, between the data. What I did already build was just another little table that is one column, four items, a status table with red, yellow, green. You can see how this might apply to a business sense. And what I can do is, if I go back to my task table, is I can now start to connect tables together. So if I select the, the, the status column, I go to Format, I can choose this thing called a row link, which gives me the ability to connect tables together. I say, hey, my source is a table, and I'm going to point it to the status table. Click Apply. Hey, presto. And very quickly, I can now see that those items are coming from the other table there's status. And I'm just going to fill a few out of these. In. I don't have to just drag. I can copy. I can also fill down. So there's some familiarity here with how a spreadsheet operates. That's kind of interesting. It's not groundbreaking yet, but you just wait. So the third column I've got here is I have this idea of an owner table. One of the things we've done is we've actually connected the idea of team to the data model. And so you can have a new contact type here of a person. We call it a contact. And so I can, again, go to the format menu, and I can choose contact type. I'm going to leave the default. And I can actually start to pick people against it. And guess what? I'm seeing the people now that are in my particular team. And again, I can drag down... I'm gonna add Rob to the bottom. So we've got a few folks here that are, that are part of this. Part of, part of my, part of my little project here. Like, okay. So I've got a reasonable data model. It's pretty straightforward. It's not rough at Okay. Well, why, now we've got some data. Why don't we build an app? And I can do this in a couple of ways. I come over to the apps menu and I can click plus. And I can do two things. I can use app wizard and literally in like 45 seconds to a couple of minutes, it's gonna make a few guesses, ask you a few questions and build an app. But that's just too easy. So I'm going to build the app manually myself. So I'm going to choose build my own, and it takes us into the app builder experience. Okay, and let me orient you a little bit to the to the user layout here. On the left-hand side, we have the screens of my app. So by default, when we create a new app, there's one screen, um, and I can add more screens. Uh, in the middle, I have the screen layout uh, interface where I can choose to place certain items on the screen. I can edit text, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And on the right, I have a properties pane where I can configure certain things of, of those particular options. I also, down the bottom, and it's a little hidden until we get to that phase, there is also this thing called, what we call the peaking sheet, which gives you a little snapshot back to the data that you're going to be connecting to from inside of your app design. But we'll come to that in a second. Okay. So very, very simply, I'm just going to go build this manually. I've got some options that I can add to my page. I'm going to start out very simply by just adding just a blank list control. Okay? And so I drop a list. I'm going to close this. Pick this up. So I've got a list. I'm now going to set it to a particular table in my database. So what we're essentially doing is we've got a control on the screen that we're now going to say, please go connect this to data in my table. So I need to go pick the table, right? And so I want to go pick the... The task table. Okay. And as you can see here, down at the bottom, we're now seeing the task table that we created earlier. It should look familiar. And I can now very simply go and add data to my particular app. Okay. So I've done some things. I've, and you can see there it's updated. It's pretty, pretty rough right now. Let's go change this. Let's call it task list. Okay. You're like, well, that's kind of nice. Why don't we actually go have a look here at what this thing looks like? fun part is. I can go click View App. OK. And hey, Presto, we have two apps that have been built in parallel here. I have a web app, which I'm showing you a quick preview of, and it starts to look very familiar. It's not very pretty right now. We're going to go fix that. Uh, But I've also actually built a mobile app all at the same time. So if I come back to the builder here, uh, there's a couple of options that are linked by default. I was building in a mobile app stream view. But we've also been building this in a web app view as well. So they're built automatically at the same time. You can disconnect them so they can look different if you want to. But by default, we help you out and make them then look the same. The fun part is, is I want to show you kind of how live and updating this is. So I'm going to put these two views side by side. All right, Build this out. I'm going to put a mobile, give me a bit more space. Okay, so right now my task list isn't particularly great. Let's, let's do a little bit of layout work. Let's drag this, let's drag this up here. And you're starting to see, as you'll see on the right-hand side there, my app is actually updating in real time. Okay? And so here's the fun part. Why don't we... Um, let, me, let me show you how to share apps here. Okay, so I've built an app. It's kind of rudimentary at the moment. But I'm actually now going to go share this app with a few colleagues on my team. So we head Nick. And Rob. Right, we've updated. And so the fun part is, is I've now shared this app with Rob and Nick, but they don't have actually access to the workbook. They only have access to the app in question. And so if Nick or Rob were to go log in, either on their web browser or uh, on their mobile device, they'd actually now be able to see this app in real time. I don't know, Nick, if you maybe want to show folks what that maybe looks like.
2: Yeah, so I've got you know my iPhone right here. And to give you all a slightly better view of this here, I've installed from the App Store, uh, again, iPhone, Apple, the, the App Store, open up Honeycode. And so what I can see here on my home screen is any of the apps that I have associated with it. So, as this loads, I can probably see under notifications. App one, a minute ago, Gavin has shared an app with me. All right. So, I can open that up. And then I can see right here, I have my app list open. And it looks very similar to what you have over there in the browser on the, uh, on the mobile view.
0: Or actually, no, the right. mobile
2: view is from before, right?
4: Yep. Yep. Cool. Oh, that,
0: that is so cool. Yeah, I'm able to see it online as well.
4: All right, there you go. So you've got, we've got, we've got app shared. And I just want to clarify one thing. So the way the apps are shared, web apps, they just have a URL, right? But these apps are pushed out to this mobile app that you download from the iOS and Android stores, right? So you download this one-time app called the Honeycode app from iOS app store uh, or the Android store. And as soon as apps, Honeycode apps are shared with you, it'll appear in the app view. And so that's how Nick and Rob are seeing that uh, on their device straight away. The fun part is, I think as Nick is still showing the app screen there, as I make updates to the app builder, those changes are rolled out to everybody who's got this app already. So for instance, if I go back and go, hmm, I actually want to show who the owner is, I can drop that into my app design here. You're seeing my web app update, and then hopefully in real time there, you're seeing on the mobile device in a completely different location to me, Nick's mobile device is also updated.
0: Okay, wait, wait. We gotta. We have to rewind that. You, you just, you just added. You just dragged a row, the the owner row, the owner column rather, into the designer on the left here, and we saw it instantly appear in both the web app and the mobile app. Is that right?
4: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. (laughs) It's it's almost instant, but you can see there. There's some performance, right? So we use this idea of live updating not just to do app design. But we use this idea of updating, that, uh, of live updating to do the two-way communication in app. So, for instance, right now this app is very rudimentary. It just shows a list. But if I go in here and actually set the properties of this middle column and just make it editable, what I've just done in one click is I've made this status column editable. Okay, And you can see over here now in the web app, I can now pick those items. And this is where that power comes from. That status table is now driving a drop-down in the app UI. The fun part is, is if I hands off the keyboard here, if one of you guys now go change one of those items, because you can, because it's now editable.
2: All right, I'll try that. So I have, I'm going to go to iron close. It's set to green. I'm going to change that over to uh, red.
4: And there you go. So I'm now seeing my app to red. You're also seeing down here in the data that it's actually updated the spreadsheet. And that's how this power of apps and live updating works. But we're not done. We're not even close to done. There's way more in here. uh,
3: Okay, we're
2: going to have to get some more. But can we, so to my understanding, Gavin, you just showed us that we basically have our data as a golden source of truth that is live updating as we edit our UI and auto-deploying those updates to all people that are shared with that application. All of that essentially happens seamlessly in one step.
4: Yep. And I didn't have to deploy any infrastructure. I didn't have to write any code. I literally created an app in the web browser right there.
0: I feel like we need to really spend just a couple more minutes admiring <laughs> what we've accomplished here. Because while what you're showing us is a fairly simple CRUD app, right? I mean, most of us have <laughs> built a to-do app if we are if we're, if we're a software developer. Um, but if you're not a software developer, you kind of have to rely on a software developer to build one of these. And if you work in a large company... Then you've been through this process, right? This is kind of, kind of talking about what Gavin mentioned early on, where if you're a business user, you know, if you rely on IT for these kinds of things. You may be familiar with the, the process of even if you, if, even if the IT department is staffed properly to build a mobile app, then you're talking about installing enterprise certificates, sideloading the application. You request a feature like, can I edit the status of a to-do list? And that's like a several week work item. And that's just to get the work done. Who knows how long it's going to take to push that out to the internal enterprise app distribution system, right? And what you're showing us right here just cuts through all of that.
2: I think another thing, like, even as someone who writes code, I see this as an opportunity to automate a lot of things that I'm still doing manually myself. You know, like, just because I could write an application that is, you know, push my stuff from an Excel sheet into a database, I don't want to be... Necessarily doing that, it may not be worth the the you know the, the time cost to me. Something like this could be way more appealing. Like I can't even begin to enumerate the number of times that like you know documents are passed around and then stored in a central place and people update them and all of this and it's like this is exactly what solves that problem.
0: Yeah, and, and also I mean the this, the light bulbs are going off. Right? I could imagine you know if if um, if we're on a virtual team, I'm out in the field, I'm working with a customer. There's some piece of missing data. I can just ping you and say, hey, Gavin. Can we add the you know product number uh, column to the inventory, and then can I can you show me how many units are in stock? Right, you know customer X Y Z needs this right now. This this is I mean this is just not possible with a lot of the legacy ways in which we did kind of uh, proprietary app uh, built proprietary apps for enterprise solutions. So I mean I, I wow. Fantastic. I, I I was
2: worrying that I was writing checks that you would have to cash, Gavin. But now now it's now it's at your own hand. You said there's more. We want to see it. I know there's there's light bulbs. There's also some questions. You know, you talked a little bit before about you know authentication. I, I know that mm-hmm. you sent me you by adding my email. You added me to this application. As soon as I start thinking about you know data in that in that workbook or in that you know that sh- spreadsheet that you have over there, I'm trying to think like, okay, well, how, how am I going to access uh, tier that permissioning? All of these things and even beyond all of that, you know, it's great to have this live updating spreadsheet that we have here or this, this app that was delivered to me. But, you know, I'm sure you have some more bells and whistles uh, for sort of delivering last mile things like notifications and beyond.
4: That's right. Yeah, let's definitely talk about two key next areas. One, let's talk about automations and let's talk a little bit about the security and app sharing of, uh, uh, model that exists inside of Honeycode. Um Let's, let's talk about automations first and how you could automate this. So let's use this use case uh, and continue that. So if I come back to the left hand side here, what's pretty common is in a very simple crowd app task app in this particular case, what happens if I want to get notified if say Nick changes the status of one of these items? So why don't we just add that? So I can come across here. I can click on an automation and automations uh, really follow a very simple paradigm of some sort of trigger event. And then some sort of action based on that trigger event. Pretty straightforward as a concept to understand. By default, we have four triggers. One, if a date or time is reached. If a row is added or deleted to a table, which is kind of useful like if someone's maybe using a form to submit data in, a, in their app and add the row of data to a table, you could kick off an automation based on that. If a column changes, so if any value in a column of data changes, you can pick out the row that changed. Or if a particular cell changes. So in our particular case, right, I'm, I want to know, let's say, if Nick's slipping behind on his ironing and he's, he's, he's gone back to like, oh, it's not happening. I've set my status to red, right? So I'm going to say, I'm going to choose column and I'm going to pick a table. I'm going to pick the task table and then I'm going to pick a column. In this particular case, I'm going to pick status, right? So we have this reference of square brackets for column titles across the workbook. I'm going to leave everything else default. And in this particular case, I've got then some options. So the trigger condition is set. I'm going to create some actions based on that. And I can do a bunch of different things. I can do a notify, uh, which is both an email or a mobile push notification, because that's the fun part right now, where we have an app on the mobile device, so I can do posts on the mobile device. I can do in data tasks, like add a row to a table. I can delete a row from the table, so you can start to build some pretty interesting automatic processes, like add a row to this table, make a change in this other table, and then delete the source row that was in the original table that kicked this automation off and create those kind of flows. Um, I have some variations on that, so I can do an overwrite. Or I can do the variation again of, like, if the row already exists, update it. If it doesn't exist, add another row to the table, right? And so you can start to build some pretty interesting logic with some of those options. Right now, I'm just going to do a simple notify, right? So I get a, my the view that comes up is an email. So I can actually pull actually the recipient for this from the table, or I could hard-code it. And so I literally can go, hmm, I'm going to pick the owner. And I'm actually going to add uh, an email address here. Get my email address there. Okay, so I'm going to get myself uh, uh,
3: this status and change equals. I'm going to pick the status uh, for the task.
4: Uh, okay, and you can start to see there it's starting to pull out, pull out this particular information, right? And I can add more and more. Okay, I'm feeling pretty good with this. I can add a link to the app if I want, and now I click Publish. Okay, And give it a few seconds for the automation to be public. Okay, that's all ready to go. And so now if any time that Nick or Rob go update the status, we're actually going to see an email come through. Or a push notification to me on the, on the device there. Um, and it'll take a few minutes for that to come through. We have to wait for email to flow. But it's as simple as that as creating automations in the product. Now, so though the automations I just sho- showed you there are actually just automations inside of really the, the data. I can also build automations inside of apps. So I want to show you that real quick. So a pretty common scenario here is let's say if I build a new screen and maybe I've got some sort of form on here. So I've got a block and then maybe I've got another block and I add a button, pretty common scenario, right? And maybe I'm passing data in. I can actually set properties on a button in a very similar way to the automation capability. And I'm diving a lot deeper now, so bear with me here for a second. I can come across to the actions and not only can I do simple things like make a button navigate to another screen or refresh the current screen, I can actually create automations inside of this. And you'll see here is that there's actually a condensed version of that same automations flow. And so when I click the button, I can do a bunch of things, like do a notify, add a row of data. And so a pretty common thing is, let's say, if I'm building a web form, and I've got choices, right? I can either use the live updating mechanism where I've got some input fields, and as soon as I edit text, it updates the sheet. Or I can actually disconnect the app from the data service, I can have a bunch of input forms and then when I click the button, we can validate that everything is filled in correctly before submitting it to the table. So I can disconnect the live updating in that sort of manner. So there's lots of different ways to control how data gets updated, but there are probably things for us to dig into in deeper, later sessions. <laughs> uh, but I just wanted to show you that there is more here under the covers when it comes to automations and controlling data. Okay, so we talked a little bit about automations. Maybe we should talk a little bit about how kind of sharing works inside of of, of Apps and Builder. And let's go back to the home screen here and let me show you some of the user interface here. So we've been building this top workbook here called ToDo and the app that I built is called App One. That's the name of the app that appeared for for Nick and Rob and I can rename it. So I can very easily rename this app to be something more appropriately friendly uh, inside of the App Builder. What I want to show you though is I have two choices, right? Nick and Rob, as part of my team, can collectively now build workbooks in my team. Okay, I'm the currently the admin of this team, uh, but they can go create new workbooks and new apps inside of this. But I won't see them unless they share them um, in, in that particular sense, or other people are added. But if I want to control who specifically has access to an app or a workbook, I can share them specifically. So if I shared, the, right now, the app is just shared with Nick Robin myself. Okay, and we see that in this particular screen here. I can also choose to share the workbook. So right now, only Gavin can see the workbook. So Nick and Rob can't go in and change the app. They can't change the data without using the interface of the app. They can't change the app layout of the app. All they can do is they're an app user and use the app in a way that me as a builder has configured it. Okay? And so that's really the first level of data security here is I can control who has workbook access, who has app access, and then there's a third layer that I'm going to show you now, which is about access to data at a row level in tables. You is some of the fun parts. Okay, so let's go back to the app builder for a second. I'm going to go into the workbook here. And I'm going to show you. So earlier, right, we had this very nice simple app. We have a bunch of items. Uh, we have different people associated to them, okay? And a pretty common scenario is I've got the task list here. It's like, I actually only want to show Nick the task that he's got to do, and he doesn't need to be distracted by everything that Gavin and Rob have to do, right? In one click, let me show you how we turn on a feature called personalization. So I can come back to the list. I'm gonna go to properties. here. And I'm gonna, on the bottom here, we've got this item called personalization. If you remember right back at the beginning, I enabled a column of data called owner and I changed it to a contact type. Because it's a contact type, I can now use that context of the user and compare it to the user that's logged into the app. So in my app in the web browser here, I'm logged in as Gavin. On Nick's phone, he's logged into the Honeycode as Nick, as is Rob. And you can use that context to compare it to the contact values out of a column. This is easier if I just show you what it looks like. So I can literally go into personalization here. I can pick the owner column, and you'll see what happens. My app has been updated, and it just shows Gavin. If Nick and Rob go into their versions of the app, they'll see, and I think on one of the cameras you'll see here, I think it's Nick. you'll see now I think it's three rows of data in his app. Right? Yep. And so here we've suddenly got one app connected to a single data table that's now showing a different user interface for three different people. That's, that's rad. on that for a second. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no permit. Yeah, that's wow. That's really cool. I, I just think like every single time I, I hear about another feature that's supported like watching it work without like a slow redeploy or like I need to update my app in the, from the app store. Like every single time there's another one of these more complicated or more complex features that you show me and it's just I see it happening in front of me. I'm, I'm just wowed every time
0: like it doesn't get old. And, and not only that, I mean, I have to appreciate this from the perspective of while wow, there are ways to do things like over the air updates for apps this is even faster than say a react native app over the air because we're not doing a bundle reload. This seems to be doing it without any sort
3: of reload, um, and it's all push based. So I mean, yep. at the technical level, this is incredibly impressive.
4: Yeah. There's a lot of technology happening under the covers to make it look this simple. <laughs> <laughs> <Say
3: that. laughs> uh, we, we can get into a little bit of, uh,
2: some of that in a bit. Uh, was there anything else in particular you wanted to show off? I mean, we've now we we literally 10, 15 minutes ago started from scratch from a blank notebook or blank workbook. You created a new one. Uh, simple to do app. We walked through creating the, the spreadsheet that would house all of our data for our application. And then from there, you, you entered the editor, you created the the interface. We we saw that it simultaneously built mobile and, and web uh, mobile and web interfaces at the same time. Uh, you showed us the hot like the hot reloading between the editor and your other in browser, we showed that reloading instantaneously on my phone. I know Rob said it worked on his as well. What else? Uh, We set up actions. So you showed us uh, if we change things, it will send an email. I I know I changed some things. I I saw Rob changing some on my phone as well. So um, you'll probably get a bunch of emails now with those (laughs) notifications. And then lastly, you just saw in one or two clicks the personalization feature, which is essentially tiered permissioning for access to data within an application with like one or two clicks. That was okay. like I I'm speechless. Like that's that's crazy.
0: You <laughs> have I do have two really interesting questions for uh that I wanted to uh, forward to you, Gab, and I think they're really good discussion points, especially for those on Twitch who can't see these questions here. One of them has to do with the data, right? So, you know, you, you showed us how you locked on the permissions so that we can only edit the tasks that are assigned to us. But let's say before you did that, you left the mm-hmm. app open temporarily, we were still kinda of hacking on it. We didn't know quite how to, how it should look or feel or, or what the restrictions should be. And during that time I accidentally went in there and deleted a row. Is there a way to roll the notebook back and recover that data?
4: That's a great question. Yeah, so we, we are taking snapshots as changes are made to the workbook. And so you can go back and recover the workbook at an earlier state, um, right from within inside side of the, the user interface here. The um, You have to be careful, though, right? Because as your apps get more complicated, you might think, oh, I just made this little mistake. Let me roll the workbook back. But if your app is out there in the wild and there's lots of people making changes, that might be destructive to some other changes that other people have made. You want to be a little cautious. There are other ways, though, that you could achieve a similar sort of thing. Like, natively right now, we don't have full auditing capability, like if any changes happened everywhere, that surfaced to the user. We have it on the back end, but it's not visible yet from, a, from an end user builder standpoint. But because it's a platform that you can build on, I can actually build that stuff myself, right? I have tables of data. I could set up automations that say, huh, any time anything in this column changes, including adding a row of data, call write that row of data to another table, and so I have a record that it's actually occurred. And so I can actually build my own auditing capabilities inside of my own app if I wanted.
3: Yeah.
4: Um, and so there are there are things that you can do here to mitigate some of those problems.
3: That is that is very interesting.
0: That, that uh, yeah. I figured. A related question. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Nick. I was just going to say it's a really interesting capability
2: because I think one of the things that people often goes through their mind when we when they look and observe applications or services like this is that you know it's it's a set of abstractions on top of capabilities that I want to perform, and oftentimes the question becomes, well, what is going to be the blocker for me where I want to do something that it doesn't support? And so I was not in any way expecting the answer to be, oh, we don't formally support auditing first party. Well, it, the tools are actually so. So generalizable that you can build that functionality yourself. And so it, it's really amazing that this concept that may not, you know, may be very standard for people that are database admins and operators there uh, to bring that capability to actually have that confidence that you can run production data out of a Honeycode app without even writing any code because you can build in those features like that. That was actually very surprising to me. Uh, that's really cool stuff.
0: Yeah. Speaking of databases, cool. another, another question we have over here is, can we use external data sources? So you showed us, uh, it looks like we can import data from a CSV file, mm-hmm. authored the data from scratch. But if I have my data sitting elsewhere, can I, is there like a connector or something that I can use to hook them up?
4: Yeah, great question. This is without doubt the number one uh, request we have. Uh, there's, there's no doubt. Like We knew about this coming into launch, uh, launching the, the better version of this, and we know it's hot topic everywhere. Right now, as you say, we have an API. It's not a, it's not as complete as we would like it, but you can do some certain things. I even saw within like the first few hours of the service launching, someone had built a little bit of integration using the API to an S3 bucket and some other things. So there is some capability there today, but it's important. It's not really designed for the business user in mind. Like As soon as you have to step out and code against an API, we've now transitioned back to a more technical user. Our goal is here is is to make that ability to connect to external data, a feature of the service, but enabled as a feature of the service for a business user. And so we do expect to bring capabilities like connectors to Honeycode and to enable those experiences, both frankly for uh, AWS services, the data that's stored in AWS services. But there's a whole wide world out of there, and customers are already asking us for, well, can I connect to this data or this uh, product in that's, that's outside of the AWS family? It's something for our roadmap. We're going to get to it. Yeah,
0: Yeah,
2: but the the context is really valuable there. I think that um, everyone always wishes they knew the the roadmap of every single tool. And I think one of the more valuable things into understanding is how the team's thinking, how they're prioritizing things, how they would craft their roadmap. And so the digital context around being laser focused on a particular set of business users here helps to sort of contextualize for people like, well, when will this feature come in? Or when will this integration for maybe my AWS account come in? And the answer is, you know, and I don't know if you actually, we mentioned it sort of tangentially, but Honeycode lives outside of an AWS account, right? Like it's in its own entire signup process. It's billed separately. Um, it has its own unique billing uh, sort of schema, which we'll get into in a moment. But this is, again, not necessarily for the AWS user looking to have a front end that just fronts S3 and Dynamo and their existing resources. This is This is something wholly separate.
4: It is, it is. And yeah, it's worth talking a little bit about kind of that sign up flow and how it connects to AWS. So, look, our number one goal here is that there are, what, a billion, two billion, somewhere like that, like business users out there, right? They know how to use spreadsheets. They are struggling with these types of problems in their day to day. And they're the type of people that we want to empower with Honeycode. They're our primary audience. That being said, like, The initial uh, engagement from customers, especially a lot of the AWS community, has been fantastic. And we are absolutely going to listen to the requirements that also come from that community. And so we could see Honeycode also evolve to being able to support multiple audiences, right? Like business users is number one. But what happens in the future is maybe I want to build a different app that maybe lets me control. um, Maybe it's a new control plane for the uh, AWS services in the console. Why couldn't I do that in a Honeytoed app? Like, there's all sorts of ideas which you kick around. Like, it's just APIs at the end of the day, right? So once we've got the fabric in place to to enable those new scenarios, like, it's up to the imagination and creativity of our community. And that's actually a good segue to one of the other things that I want to talk about is another area that we've invested in this product is we wanted to bring the community on along with us on this journey. And so we've invested in a community platform really fundamentally because the inspiration and the ideas out there and just the creativity is remarkable. And we wanted to help and foster that community from inside of the product. And so you can get access to the community from the product here. If I click over on the help icon, I can actually hop into the community tab. And you can see here you land in the community experience where there's a whole bunch of training materials, getting, getting started, tips and tricks, features, and then there's also a discussion area. You can jump in here and these are all posts that have been happening from customers since we launched the service this week and it's fantastic to see this level of engagement. Um, so if there are additional questions, like people are trying to figure out how to go, check out some of the materials here, ask questions in the community, our team is staffed, they're engaging to, to engage with folks on here, but we'd also love to see like fellow, fellow honeycoders helping each other, right? That's a, that's a wonderful thing when that happens.
3: Yeah,
0: I love that. One of the, the, the items in the forum was that Users show eternally as invited, eternally seems <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> forever and ever. It will never be otherwise. <laughs> but this is great. I mean, this is, I think this is the exact kind of thing that you look for when you're talking about a new product to get, make sure that you're getting that traction. I mean, the yeah. fact that you're getting this kind of engagement this shortly after launch is really encouraging to me.
4: Yeah. And, and look, at the end of the day, right now, in a, in a rudimentary way, the list of questions that are coming in from our customers here and their ask and their feedback, That is driving our roadmap, right? And and so, like we're customer obsessed. We're part of Amazon and AWS, and uh, it is it's really it's really great to see the, the the ideas and the feedback coming in, and it's already shaping kind of how the team's thinking about where we go from.
2: Wait, Gavin, I have a question for you. If I have a product roadmap suggestion, should I post it on Twitter or on your community forum?
4: I'd love for you to post it in the, in the community forum. Okay. That's going to be a more concrete way for us to, to capture it and, and add it to our roadmap.
2: I'll be sure to spread the news.
0: Thanks. Yeah, just wanted to make sure.
2: So next up, I, I brought up pricing before, You know the uniqueness mm-hmm. of this living in a standalone account that is not tied to any AWS otherwise parent account. So what is the pricing looking like for,
0: for an application like this?
4: Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm actually going to go to the... The Honeycode website here because it's going to do a better job of explaining it, and I'll talk you through kind of what I'm looking at here. So, if, if folks go to uh, honeycode.aws, this is the front-end website where you can sign up to be uh, a Honeycode user, and let's let's talk a little bit about pricing. So, we at launch we have three pricing tiers, and like it's it's been a big question for us, frankly, of kind of how customers are going to use the service. Like, how much data do they need? How many workbooks they're going to have? What's going to be the interesting kind of ways that customers use it? And so we've we've gone out with kind of three levels of pricing at our launch here. So as I said right at the beginning, like, you sign up for Honeycode, you get ev- everything that I've just shown you right now, the apps that I build, everything is free and enabled in the basic tier. Like, all of that stuff is there. Like, the the caps that we have are up to 20 users and 2,500 rows of data per workbook. Okay, and I want to explain this a little bit, Jeff, Okay, because this may not be obvious. So users is relatively straightforward. Like if you want to add the 21st user to your team, you need to upgrade to the plus or the pro tier. Okay. By default in the basic plan, any you can create an unlimited, basically an almost unlimited number of workbooks. I have to be careful using the word unlimited in the world. <laughs> and uh, essentially though, that they are capped at 2,500 rows of data each okay, in the basic tier. There are an awful lot of use cases, though, that you can build within 2,500 rows of data, right? That's a very big task list of when you have 2,500 rows, right? Now, if you want to go beyond that and you want more rows of data per workbook, you can upgrade to the plus or pro tier. So the plus tier has 10,000 rows per workbook, and you can have as multiple, many workbooks in your, in your team, or pro has 100,000. We're looking at what makes sense beyond that. Like there are going to be cases where customers say, "Well, I've got more than 100,000 loads of data. What do I? How do I use this? How does this make sense?" And so we've designed the database technology underneath to scale. The question is, is is it good to put it in a workbook? Maybe we want a closely coupled relationship with some of the other AWS services where we can store huge amounts of data. Is that the better model? The point is, is that we need the data in tables to get some of that live updating capability. And so it's a decision we want to make. To As we see customer feedback, like which way to go? Is it that we increase above 100,000 rows in a workbook? Maybe we create workbook to workbook federation. Maybe we create connectors to uh, other AWS services and other databases. These are all questions that we want to understand from our community. But right now, there's a lot of value that you're getting in, in these tiers. So if you want more users and more rows per workbook, you need to upgrade to some of these later tiers. And the way that we do that is... When you sign up for the the, the basic tier as a new user, you all have to sign up at the basic tier. Is that you're just signing up with an email, okay? It's, there's no AWS account creation at that point. And so you very simply email password sign up for an account and hey Presta, you are from the experience that I just showed you. When you want to upgrade to the Plus and Pro tier, what actually happens under the covers is that we connect your Honeycode team to an AWS account, and it's the AWS account that then gets billed, okay? And so the flow, once you do the upgrade to Pro and Plus, is that you'll create an AWS account at that point if you don't have one and then associate your HoneyCode team to it, okay? Because then billing's done against the AWS account. We didn't want to build all that infrastructure right now. Again, it's something that we're going to look at are there other simpler ways that we can enable other billing services or other Amazon assets to do some of this, but it's TBD. But that's the upgrade process. There.
3: Awesome, thank you. Yeah, very comprehensive uh
2: answer there. And, and again, uh, 2,500 rows, I, I think they're... When I think about the business tasks that I've solved, like, yeah, we're talking this database level stuff where, it, you know, size of the oh. data set grows exorbitantly. But I can't remember the last time I used a spreadsheet in front of me that was more than 2,500 rows, uh, maybe years ago. I could probably name on one hand, right? So, I think that for the free tier is going to be a very compelling option for people to not only try out and get started, but um, maybe to adopt and start building applications on top of. Yep.
4: Exciting. We're excited to see what people do.
2: Wow. Yeah, uh, this is not the Honeycode show. This is just, you know, a very big launch that uh, very exciting for many reasons. We've been spending a lot of time on it. We talked about support on the forums. We talked about pricing. I guess one topic that comes to mind is like with access. Uh, we, We covered, you know, personalization, granting access and limiting access. So, let's say, you know, I I uh, I'm, I'm on your team, or I'm, I'm in your workbook. You've given me permission. You, you let's say you've even pared down for only the tasks that I have permission of. But let's say I uh, you know I, I leave to go join another company. I no longer should have access to this data. What does that revocation process look like? Do you just remove me from the from the team in there, and then all of the granular permissions downstream sort of update automatically?
4: Yeah. Why don't I kick you out of my team? All
2: right. Hold on one sec. Let me open the the the. Uh, <laughs> the phone and we'll, we'll show it live.
3: <laughs> uh, let's go. Okay, right there.
4: This may take a few minutes for the things to, to cascade through. So you may, it may not be a great live demo here. But the point is, is I'm going to show you removing you from the team here. And mm-hmm. then as soon as the authorization token expires, then you won't have access to anything as part of it.
2: Cool. I'll just leave it up uh, while we talk through some of the final things then. He's gone.
4: Nick's gone from my team.
2: All right, it's only a matter of time before I find out <laughs> or oh, one out for Nick, everyone <laughs> 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 so uh you know you spoke a little bit about you know the fact that you know at the larger tiers this this does tie in with the for billing system into the uh another a w s account There's lots of tech that makes all this possible we were We were surmising about some of the ways that it, uh some of the things that we hypothesized could be involved. Is there any other tech under the hood that we really do want to surface or like, you know, uh, any, anything there? Or
4: Yeah, why, why not? I mean, there's there some new innovations that have actually exist inside of Honeycode, right? They're like, they're not existing services. The service that's been built is Honeycode. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is, frankly, running on AWS infrastructure. So we are a big consumer of S3. We're a big consumer of EC2. The magic, most of the magic you're seeing is really down to three core services, S3, EC2, which is most of it, and then we also heavily use the IoT services. So all of that I, that updating that's happening is using a lot of the AWS infrastructure there to do to do that live notification. But these are these essentially as you load workbook, open a workbook, open an app, we load it into memory. So this is a this is an in-memory database that we've essentially built, and that's why the performance is so high.
2: That's awesome. That, I, that's something that I don't think most people would think about, right, like right off the cuff, right? Like an IoT service. But when you think about the the workload profile here, uh, real time, you want this synced, uh, you know, event stream driven sort of, you know, over the air deployments. That's that's a really innovative use of those IoT services.
0: That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just to just to clarify that too, uh, when people hear IoT, normally they think of some sort of embedded device, you know, a Raspberry Pi or um, Arduino or IoT buttons. While those are certainly IoT devices, what we're seeing here is a really creative use of IoT. And you're not the only team to do this, but the IoT is very flexible in the sense that you can use it as a WebSocket gateway. Right? Um, it's just a completely managed WebSocket gateway for you uh, where you can do these things like push notifications so you can enable these kinds of built time interactions. So really cool to hear that you're, you're using AWS uh, in such a creative way.
2: Yeah. Cool. Uh, I don't know. You couldn't see it, Gavin, but on my side here, we've got uh, the no mobile apps now. So I my access was revoked. I don't have access to it anymore. Uh, behaving as intended. Awesome stuff. Well, I mean, we're probably at about an hour for this one session, and I uh, we have even more to get to. But Gavin, this this was really great. You know, again, I saw the launch materials. I I, I read all of the messaging they said. It, you know, you guys are going to make it easier for us to build applications or for business users in particular to build applications. And I think this demo really sells me on that. And I hope that uh, we can get this in front of the people so that uh, even if they're not AWS users today, because again, this is not an AWS service, maybe they could be getting started to build some of their own apps. I think a lot of the, the interfaces are familiar. A lot of the user experiences are things that people are familiar with. And a lot of the improvements here are really just... I, I would call them last mile problems, but I think there's so much more than that, you know, like going from a spreadsheet to, you know, fully, fully managed and permissioned real-time syncing database uh, features is, is is a big jump in the same way that automating real-time data syncing with app editing and deployment, like, I don't know, that's far more than the last mile for, for a lot of folks. That's where they spend all their time uh, in traditional application development. So some really cool stuff. Again, uh, Gavin G, product management from the uh, Honeycode team. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gavin.
4: My my most pleasure. It's been it's been super fun to share what we have, and uh, we're excited to see what customers can do. There's more coming, um, and frankly, there's more that we could show you as well. So i would also love to hear from from customers and folks out there to say, Hey, look, can you, can you if you want more content on certain things, I'm happy to come back and, and demo more and show other things as well.
2: Awesome. So one final sign-off for HoneyCode here. If you're looking to get started, head on over to uh, honeycode.aws, sign up for an account, username and password, and you can get started building apps just like we did today on today's show. Yeah, and it's free and it's generally available. Awesome. Well, we've got two more very exciting demos coming up for our second demo session of the day. This one is very exciting to me. I'm a huge fan of Recognition. use it for a lot of different applications. But in particular, we're talking about Recognition's segment detection features for media analytics workloads. Uh, Joining us today to talk a little bit about that is Liam Morrison. Liam, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, Liam. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you do uh, with the recognition team. I know we have quite a long title listed on there on the screen. You know, you wear many hats at at, at AWS. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes. So I am a principal solutions architect focusing on practical applications of AI and machine learning across media and entertainment. So I work with uh, larger media customers on their uh, applications of machine learning, computer vision, personalization, recommendation, uh, you name it.
2: Awesome. Lots of different things, lots of different uh, theaters that you operate in, again. So let's let's sort of recap. This was a lengthy sort of launch title for this segment, but I think there's a lot of moving parts in it, so let's break it down. We're talking about recognition video now having the ability to perform a handful of discrete functions to for media analysis workloads. So uh, before we get into those particular workloads, let's take a step back. Amazon Recognition purpose-built uh, computer vision service started out uh, mainly with uh images and computer vision on on static images, but has since evolved and has become uh, you know much larger in that it offers both capabilities with videos like we 're going to be covering today, but also a, a large number of different functionalities of which uh things people can extract value from images and videos. I know that was very generalizable, but um you know are, are there any in particular that jumped out to you uh, that have come along over time
1: yeah so We've seen a lot of customers kind of gaining intelligence from their assets, uh, looking for objects, celebrities, uh, moderated content. Uh, There's been a long journey of recognition heading towards uh, helping content creators and distributors really package and and understand their content at a second-by-second or now frame-by-frame level. One of the more recent ones was the Custom Labels launch allowed you to kind of go out from just what labels recognition can find and find very specific labels. So logos, animated characters, there's a lot of use cases that media customers were, were asking for that were very specific to their business. So it didn't make sense to put into recognition's broader API.
0: Yeah. I, I'm just to jump in here for a minute, I feel like also to help frame this up, um, you know, we have a lot of different AI and ML services across AWS and we we can, A good way to think about them is that the break between AI services and ML services is how much you need to know about the machine learning process itself, right? And so kind of adding on to what Nick just said, recognition is one of our turnkey AI services. You don't really need to know how the training and how the model works under the hood. You can just give it an image and it'll say, hey, look, uh, we think there's 85% confidence that there's a dog in this picture here, right? So just kind of giving a, a bit more overview. And then what we're talking about here is when you say the custom labeling, this is kind of extending the turnkey feature into a little bit more customization so it kind of Heading that down toward the, the, um, the ML kinds of solutions that are a bit more customizable
3: from the ground up.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So building a custom object detection model, uh, can be done in SageMaker, obviously, but, uh, many customers find that maybe too, too much to get down to Jupyter just because they want to find a logo and a piece of content. So it really removes the undifferentiated heavy lifting and you give it logos and you tell it where the logo is and it can train a model on, on your behalf but you don't have to get down into the weeds of machine learning. To do it. Awesome.
2: Yeah. Again, the turnkey solution is sort of the starting point and then just extending more and more features is a great way to sort of position this launch. Uh, I think that when we think about the value of, of being able to extract this value from, from content, whether it's images or video, these are often things that that we know people can do that, that in traditional times would be done manually. And, and so, these tasks are typically very laborious. Like I personally, like I play a bunch of games. Sometimes I want to, you know, take make my own little highlight reels. The amount of time it takes for me to just sift through content to find clips is just, you know, monumental, right? So, there are a large number of other features uh, and, and Liam, I know I'm pr- probably preaching to the choir because you work with a lot more of these customers than I do but... Can we talk to a little bit of the pain points in that manual process? Because it's it's more than just like the labor cost or the the time it takes to do it. I'm sure there's other concerns as well with traditional media
0: labeling tasks.
1: Yeah, a, a lot of it comes down to how much content you have and how much you need to know about your content. Historically, obviously, content comes packaged with markers to understand things generally, where to put commercials. Hopefully comes in some of the top tier content. But to do something like, Amazon X-Ray, for instance, which you pause a scene in in Prime Video and you get to know who's in that scene. That requires a different level of information now. You need second-by-second, frame-by-frame bits of information. So a lot of times that's done manually where you have loggers going into the content noting exactly where the black frame is or where the color bars are and and really creating a lot of that metadata manually or uh, in the content creation process you have people clipping each different shot so you can create promos from material. Awesome. Uh, yeah. I mean,
2: really what this, like, if we were to distill those, those pain points down to like some key business operating, uh, I guess, metrics, what, what have you, like, it's like scalability. Like let's say I have a large amount of content you know, maybe in enough time, I could have my editors process all of it. But if you just simply need it done by a certain amount of time, there's only so many editors you can have. And the concurrency issue, the availability of concurrent editors could become a problem. The the cost uh, of simply editing all of this, like, I think of customers like C-SPAN. I know they've used recognition video in the past for tasks just like this to label video. And like, uh, for those that are not familiar, C-SPAN in the United States is a is a government uh, channel that that sort of Films almost 24-7. I don't know the specifics, but they have a a ton of content, essentially. It just runs uh, at infinitum. And so there's sort of no ability to take a step back and pause and label that because there's more content being generated all the time. So without this like ability to have uh, automated awareness of what's going on in there, delivering that downstream or making it searchable and all of these things would otherwise sort of go by the wayside.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You're faced with a choice of, either going it, pushing it through that full process of logging everything or ignoring it. And, and a, lot of, a lot of people end up with backlogs of data that really can have value if they knew what was in it, if they knew what, what components, what interviews. And it's more than just computer vision. We'll talk about the audio components and, and all the different things you'd want to correlate together as well.
0: Yeah, and I think the, another thing that occurs to me is, you know, this, this feature is launching at a very interesting time when we see more video being produced than ever before, right? we see with the rapid rise of lots of different video hosting platforms, um, you know, people kind of being more comfortable videotaping various parts of their lives uh, and sharing it on social media. You know, I, I think that there's another element, which is if we had the data in front of us, we probably see that there's just a lot more raw video coming in and that requires this kind of editing.
1: And it's being done more and more remotely. We'll talk about editing, creation in the cloud, like, yeah, the, the explosion of, like, direct-to-consumer and just the explosion of, of people creating their own content. These tools, which might seem very specific to the larger media organizations, are actually becoming applicable to just about anyone.
2: Well, I feel like I have a good frame of reference here for sort of what class of problems this is solving, who's going to find this valuable. But let's get into the meat and potatoes of this.
1: What, what are the exact features that have recently launched for
3: recognition video?
1: So on Monday, we launched the, a new API, which is called a recognition video for media analysis. And, and we know there's already been media analysis done using recognition, but what our customers were telling us was very specifically, they need things that help them create, package, and distribute content. So that led to this new API, which is very specific to these type of challenges. Um, and and our, our hope is that customers bring us more and more of these type of challenges. So the, the four... Components of the uh, Recognition Video for Media Analysis API is shot detection, so you can understand when an individual shot changes, which is common for creating promos. Looking for color bars, so, uh, Society Motion Picture and Television Engineer standard color bars, which happen before package content. The concept of looking for end credits, and also looking for black frames. So, uh, in between pieces of content, you'll have black frames with the lack of audio
2: yeah and we spoke a little bit about each of these beforehand i think some of these are actually familiar to most folks even if they've never done analysis on media they, they may recognize some of these tasks because of some of the artifacts that leak into into some things on public broadcast uh, do you have any materials where we can we can look through uh what some of these these actually become yeah i have, some, like, yeah, I have cool.
3: some examples and then i, I get through it. awesome all right well, quite another way, you know, when you mentioned that that uh,
0: customers gave you the feedback that, you know, these are the things that we need to detect. If you have that information on hand, let's say the the, the service can detect all of those things that you just mentioned. What do customers do with that information?
1: Could be used to package or, or clip the asset. So, uh, and we'll go into it. I Actually, I can go in, go in API by API and talk about where you might use them if that helps. Yeah. And, and to your point on seeing it leaked out, I, th- I think we, we've all seen uh, color bars or jitters on more likely public broadcasts, but but it happens uh, throughout the industry at times. Hopefully, we never see it. Uh, you see different things when things aren't frame accurate. And that's the one other thing I want to mention about this API specifically, which is, again, really beginning our, our, our laser focus into the, the media and entertainment industry is, is the concept that we're providing... SMPTE time timecode, so it's very specific down to the frame of data when this uh, detection happens. Uh, as, as you mentioned, there is a very large stack. Today, we'll be focusing mostly on, on the vision services, but I did want to highlight that we'll likely be needing information from other higher-level services and maybe even in lower-level services down, in, down the stack. So, don't want to spend too long on the, on the stack. Today, we're focusing on uh, one new API within REC. So when looking at uh, a media asset, typically consists of different types of markers that, that happen along the lines of the content. Hopefully uh, you're not seeing these like the, the SMPTE color bars at the beginning, but there's also then maybe black frames that happen in between segments on say a news show or uh, different components and then uh, content usually ends with a, with a set of end credits. So also so once you get in the content, most content is comprised of multiple different shots. So that's the camera takes going from one shot to another, comprising a segment, for instance. This is just general introduction to media assets. I'm sure you know this. However, the API now that we have is a asynchronous API that allows you to start segment detection, which point you will be able to run an API that gets the results from this segment detection. So this, this allows you to pull the results back in JSON format, which include the start, the end, the SMPTE time codes for start and the end, and the duration of each of these components. So let's go through the components one by one. So black frames detection. So this is frame accurate detection of a sequence of black frames. And anyone in, in the media industry knows the uh, Blender created open source movie, Big Buck Bunny, which we're using here. This is an open source movie created from, from an organization called Blender Institute. What you see here is the Segment, the segment to segment, it goes to a black frame. The API detects that in the exact amount of time the black frame lasts. Some of the use cases here are ad insertion. So uh, one of the things that I've seen with the explosion of content is many pieces of production content have the markers for where to put an ad in. However, as catalogs are acquired and content that didn't intend to have an ad break is now uh, made into content that has an ad break, or user-generated content. There's often not a good way to tell where to put an ad. So you have mid-sentence on a piece of content, an ad just drops in. Nothing's more frustrating than than mid-word in a piece of content, an ad drops in. Also, detecting scenes, removing the breaks, um, editing. There, there's a lot of use cases just to know when the when the black frames show up. End credits seems very simple enough, but the the one of the more recent and recent last five, seven years, is this concept of bingeability and also when credits are rolling even in broadcasts, you can actually add additional, what's up next on the show, different types of end of program content. However, to do that, you need to know when the end credits start. So this is the concept of, of uh, adding a skip to next episode if you're, if you're creating something that's you know, more bingeable. You can, you can add that. It's worth noting that this is detecting the end credits. Opening credits are not detected, but uh, when I get to the demo, we'll talk about a way that you could do that now with the, the uh, feature that's already in recognition, which is the uh, text and video capability. Shot detection. Uh, this is, again, seems simple enough, but it's the concept of different shots. So if you look at the upper left of the screen, and I'll show it in the demo later, You can see it's detecting each of the individual shots. This is a different open source movie, uh, Tears of Steel, uh, but it's able to tell when the shot changes happen. This is frame accurate detection of the shot. This is good for creating clips, promo creation. Again, ad insertion could be another use case in between the different shots. Uh, Again, nothing is is more annoying than when you miss a frame in this type of a marker. So you've got one part of of the, the prior shot here. So that that's why again the accuracy is very important on this type of an API. And then finally the color bars. So this is the detection of these color bars. Again, hopefully you never see these, but uh, this is something that's done when you're cleaning up to push something over to to VOD, find the start of the program content. There's a couple use cases for the for color bars detection. And that is the the four API uh, things in a nutshell. (laughs)
3: <laughs> so I mean, some of those are uh, super
2: interesting to me. Like I, I think the black frame, like the accuracy of of all of them seems to be tantamount, right? This is not necessarily something that is impossible for people to do. They've been doing it for years, but you know, there's the amount of work it takes to get close to the frame perfect uh, answer, and then there's the amount of work it takes to get to that frame perfect answer. And like I think that everyone can agree that that last little bit takes a significantly larger amount of time. So having an API that can do this
0: in recognition video sounds super enticing. Yeah, that was a great demo, Liam. I also just wanted to clarify one thing that I saw. So with respect to the API that does uh, black frame detection for the big big buck bunny clip, that one was detecting the first frame that was totally black, right? Because I noticed that the transition actually fades out from.
1: Correct, with no audio as well. Because uh, the idea here is to separate it from fades that are part of content. So it's specifically geared at looking for, it's not just looking for black frames, because honestly, you can actually do a lot of this with just math. Like pixel density will tell you, you can tell when it's a black frame. You don't really need a machine learning model to tell you that, but it's the intelligence of knowing that that is a different type of black frame. It's specifically distanced from just black bars on the screen.
3: Took the words right out of my mouth. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I mean,
2: I, I'm trying to think like it's 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 not quite like the API of media in terms of like how clips are put together. But it, it, if, if all these media workflows and pipelines operate on the assumption that the clip has to end with this sort of data packaging format of like this black frame, it's really important to be able to recognize them, especially when you're trying to clip together things for let's say advertisements or even just in producing a movie, right? You don't want to have excessive black frames. Uh, you want to make it behave as close to what you
0: expect it to, so... Cool. Well, those uh, are the
2: four launches. I know that you have some other really cool stuff to show us. I don't know if we're going to get
1: into that right now. We have yep. some other...
2: Do you want to get into the, the MIE stuff? Or do we want to... Yeah, very
1: quick. Your call. I, I can get into that very quickly. I know we're probably a little shorter on time. But uh, I, I, think, I think it's important to show the API in context of all the other APIs as well.
2: Well, so I think in the demo, you're actually going to show us... A little bit about what that flow looks like. So, I guess before we segue into that, what if folks are to use this service to to solve these problems with these with this new set of features? Sort of, how is that used to edit content? Like, what is what is actually provided? You mentioned things like timestamps that are frame accurate. Can we talk a little bit about what users can expect before we show it to them in the demo?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, what you'll get back is a JSON document with all of the information: the start, the end, the duration. What you do with that—that actually depends on the use case. We'll, we'll talk. We'll, we'll talk about it in the demo. But one of the use cases is if you're using an edit suite, you would actually want to convert that information into a, something that's more palatable to a, Adobe Premiere or, or DaVinci Resolve or, or an edit suite, which is a, an EDL fire edit decision list. If you're using it for ad insertion, that would be a totally different use case. Now you've got the markers of where that is, so you can actually uh, use something like Media Tailor if you're if you're running this similar to how we do uh, ads on, on Thursday Night Football, you could actually use Tailor to intelligently push the ad into that component. So the use cases depend on, on what you're doing. You could also just dump it all into uh, an asset management system so you have that information for other use cases for searchability of the content, that
3: Awesome. Well, I don't want to
2: hold you up too much. These are a lot of pieces of production software that I don't personally use all that often, but I, I have dabbled, and I'm I, I excited to see uh, the improvements with the new features on Recognition Video. So uh, we want to walk through what that looks like?
1: Sure. So, yeah, I'm going to show two different, different demos. Uh, it's worth noting that both of the code, code for these demos are up on GitHub right now. There's actually... One thing we've done a great job with at at, uh, AWS Samples is is a lot of different use cases showing the different ways you might use these APIs. What I'm showing here is is something we call the Media Insights Engine, which is designed to take all of the different, uh, actually I'll show the uh, architecture really quickly. It's designed to take all of the different APIs you might need to process content and really make it easy to seamlessly run those APIs and store all of that information into a searchable state, which is in Elasticsearch here. So this is a Step Functions. It handles a lot of the heavy lifting of processing an asset. So Transcribe, Recognition, which Transcribe is our, our higher level speech-to-text service. They all have different things as far as file formats. So maybe your video isn't in the right file format, but we have uh, Elemental Media Convert, which can actually make it into that right format. So this is a series of functions that are coordinated by step functions that actually process the video, run it through recognition, transcribe. Uh, if you want to translate it into another language, Amazon Translate, and then also for understanding of the, the what is spoken, comprehend. So I know that's a lot. I'm just going to get into the demo to show it. Uh,
2: we're going to get into the demo. like So that's what we're looking at right here. This dashboard, this 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 site, this application, that is the MIE. And it is an interface that AWS has open sourced in order to make it easier for folks to leverage the power of those APIs, but do it all through a GUI. Is that correct? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and the GUI is, is really potentially for just your own use, and then you could build another GUI on top of it. The The idea of separating the kind of UX from the APIs is, is important here because you might be using it for different use cases. But yeah, this is the architecture of the serverless website that that I'm showing in the in Chrome here.
2: Yeah, and I don't want to spend too much time on, on me gushing at the MIE, but I, I work a lot with the various AWS AI services. I don't even know about this. And so when Liam was showing me this, I was... I was totally taken aback. I mean, this is like, the. I mean, we'll see it in just a moment, but uh, this is not only open source, but you can actually spin this up as a CloudFormation stack in your own AWS account. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's actually this and, and a couple others we'll talk about that are 10 minutes. You get an email with your information about how to log in, and you can begin processing content.
2: Awesome. Okay, I'll get out of your way. I know we're gonna talk about the new recognition video features that we spoke about before, but that that was that really blew me away when I saw that
5: for the first time. I was surprised I hadn't heard of it. So
1: and well there and I just want to plug a couple other ones. There's there's one that's specific to asset management uh, called Media to Cloud as well. Again, the use case fits the the problem and that, that's where there's a lot of guidance on which fits where. If you're just looking for AI services, this is this is a great way to get your hands dirty with the AI services. This is actually a, just a UI built over the APIs. So we're hitting API Gateway to get all this information from Elasticsearch. So what you see here is what I mentioned earlier. All of the different APIs people used historically to get intelligence from the, the content. Again, for years uh, after Recognition launched, you have all the objects. So this is down to a second level. What is in each scene? You can tell where each, each of these things uh, hit in each scene. Another one that was very key for media and entertainment is the concept of looking for potentially unsafe content in your assets. So if you wanted to find any type of potentially moderated content, this really sped up that capability to find, you know, suggestive nudity, suggestive weapon violence. Um, It's something we've enhanced over the years, but it's been historically very key. Also, what words show up on the screen... Moving over into the language, uh, audio language, the speech text, you have the transcript of what is in here. Also, what key phrases. So you can actually really start to get some context from your data, from your assets. So uh, what's being talked about, if it's people, dates, bondies, you can also adjust the confidence to really filter out the uh, potentially inaccurate. I set my confidence to 90%. If you want to translate, uh, Amazon Translate does a great job of translating into uh, 54 pairs of languages. Now, let's get to the new features. So we've added these two components of the Segment Detection API. This gives you the start credits, the end credits, Uh, sorry, not the start credits, the end credits. I'll talk about how to get the start credits here. So here you can see, I clicked in, it jumps right to the end credits. You can find where the black frames are. Some some way you could get the start credits, by the way. Again, that is not currently something that recognition does, but you have every word that's on the screen with the time that it was on the screen. So if you're wanting to create a start, skip intro, for instance, we'll call it, that's something you could use with the other data recognition provides. You also get the information of every single shot that's in this piece of content. So shot by shot, you can see here what shot where it starts, where it ends, and help to create promos and whatnot. So, so that's... Elgon.
2: Oh, I was going to say the shot one is one of the most impressive to me because in a lot of the other ones, I feel like, you know, we spoke before about how black frames could just be a little bit of math around like pixel density, make sure there's no audio. Uh, and, and the accuracy is highly important there. But something like shots is, is much more subjective. I feel like there's so much more room for human error there. And it's, it's so much harder to automate if I were to think of that. Now, I'm not a media expert either, but... I think that's something that, that probably takes a significant amount of time otherwise to have to handle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One, one of our uh, launch partners was A&E Networks, which uh, had that same exact problem, which was how to package their content, create promos, whatnot. I, I have a demo specific to the new API, if, it's, if it makes sense to switch over to that. Uh, I just wanted, one, make sure everyone knew about the Media Insights engine. It's up in GitHub It's definitely uh, something that we're actively developing, adding new features uh, as they come out or customers suggest uh, changes. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's jump over to the other one. So this is a demo specific to the segment detection or media analysis capabilities. So I'm going to switch gears now to more of a editing challenge. So now I'm no longer packaging, you know, I'm no longer searching for content, I'm no longer looking at my assets. I now have a piece of content that I want to actually clip, create promos, maybe uh, understand the, the asset from, from a shot level. So this is actually a film that uh, we partnered with. Uh, this was led by the Hollywood Production Association And this is based on a different code base we have called the Media to Cloud, which is all about asset management. Um, I want to focus on just the shot detection capability here. So this is something we worked with the Hollywood Professional Association on how to create a cinematic quality asset entirely in the cloud. So this is footage from cameras going directly into the cloud and then edited. But I wanted to go through an edit scenario that, that you might commonly see. So... This is now uh, also available in GitHub, which is the specific shot segment information and the technical cues. Uh, we talked about the technical cues, but I'll show it here because it actually does a good job at showing. Like, here's the end credits, so you get just the end credits and also all the black brains. Moving over to the shots, that's actually way more complicated. So if you look up here, it's counting the shots uh, one by one. You you can actually see them as it changes. So this is a like. 14 minute short film, to one that actually has a lot of shot segments. So you can see it counting the shots as they add up throughout the clip. Now I wanna go through how you might use that in a edit scenario. You can download this EDL. It's also worth noting if you actually have the JSON, we also added the feature that you can just convert the JSON into an edit decision list right here. This is actually helpful. You can use this code if you're uh, Automatically processing a, a piece of videos. So this is all very UI driven. A lot of times you'll do this automatically as you upload a piece of content. So I just downloaded this edit decision list. I'm going to move over into uh, Blackmagic's DaVinci Resolve, which is an edit platform. So you see the same exact piece of content here with uh, all the different clips. However, what I don't have is all of the different shots, which so is something I might need when editing this. So I can now import a timeline bring in this edit decision list, which uh, was generated from the segment detection API. And what I have here now is the same piece of content. However, now all of the bits are now very specifically cut up to where I can see exactly where the shots begin. You can actually see right here, shot by shot, accurate to the frame, how I might edit this piece of content.
2: That's really cool. I mean, I- that's like, I literally go through that process when I've done what limited video editing I have and I just drop manual markers in and recognition video now does that automatically.
1: That's one of the benefits here. And, and again, this is uh, just four API uh, capabilities, but the, the goal is to really remove the undifferentiated heavy lifting when it comes to this. So the ask that, that I have is, is anything that challenges you with the video that, that's something to bring to us uh, so we can see how we might do this?
2: Awesome. So again, if, if people want to recreate exactly what we just did, what are the reproduction steps here? They could go and download the MIE, or is the, 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 the latest version of that demo that was focused on the newest features, is that are those features available yet as options in the MIE? I think you showed yes. them before.
1: Yeah, yeah they, they actually launched with the, the feature on Monday. So uh, the latest, both the MIE and the shot detection demo, which is in GitHub as well, both of them support the latest features. Really download the, download the confirmation, deploy it, wait for your email, and, and then upload a, an asset is, is the, the steps. Awesome.
0: It also seems to me that the MIE is just a great sample for how you can combine all these AI services to build a, a tool that can dramatically make your workloads more efficient.
1: That, that from, from my work with customers, that was the biggest challenge is... Recognition is a host of different APIs, transcribe is a whole different set of APIs, comprehend more APIs, and then think about if you want to actually add SageMaker in there, if you've built your own models, how do you do all of that in a a way that then aggregates that information into one single location? That was really the goal behind the MIE, was to help you correlate all the different APIs together.
2: Yeah, and talking about undifferentiated heavy lifting, I'd imagine that every single production company that has to perform tasks like this may either contract out to a vendor or build some semblance of this in-house if they process enough video. And, you know, it's, it's, the experience is more than the sum of the parts, right? It's more than just the ability to, to, to extract all these insights. It's the fact that you can do it all in one place in a very easy to use GUI that you, you've shown us right here.
1: That's, it's some really cool stuff, really slick. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's the, Oh, and they are doing it both through vendors and internally. They're, they're, it's it's a mix of everything, but yeah, it's it's definitely one of the most expensive parts of, of content production, I would say, is, is dealing with a, a lot of this manual effort.
2: Awesome. Well, in the chat on both Twitch and LinkedIn, I see we have some links in there for both uh, the documentation for the segment detection API, as well as the access, getting access to the MIE, spin that up again in your own account and get started with it, and Anyone else have any questions before we sort of close out on this section uh, for Liam? While I'm waiting for other questions, um, I have one of my own. I'm I'm really impressed that we had parity with, you know, so quickly with this newest launch from Recognition Video and seeing that reflected in the MIE as an open source co- code sample. Is that something we can expect customers to see with future features as well? Do we continue to keep supporting the MIE in that same way?
1: I, I would say yes. I mean, one thing I would say is we we have a lot of really sharp, dedicated people working on it, um, and actually a growing community out in the wild as well, thanks to some very, very good, quick developers. Not even the media analysis capabilities. About a couple months ago, we launched the capability to do text and video. Seven hours from when I said, "Hey, that would be cool to have it in MIE," there was a at least a pull, a fork of it that had it. It wasn't pushed till a couple days later. But that was very impressive where I was like, hey, you know, we launched text in, in video. That would be cool. And literally hour, you know, hours later, they were like, here's this. So that's some of the benefit of the kind of open source project and some of the benefit of, of just like, we are very active on both the Media to Cloud and the MIE on reacting to the pull requests and the, the issues in, in GitHub. So I would say yes, but that's the hope. It's also pretty easy to understand. So you can actually build it yourself if, if we, we didn't build it for you right away.
2: Yeah, or, or modify it to serve other workflows for your organization and just use it as is, you know, make, make your own fork of it.
1: That's actually uh, one of the modifications we've seen recently is ad break detection. Um, that, that's actually a pretty cool fork of that that was specific to that one use case. Uh, video transcribing for subtitles is another one that we have a really good fork up in GitHub right now where you can actually run your content through and actually provides a, a kind of a dashboard to to fix the subtitles and, and generate the SRT or v, web VTT files. There's no, that's a lot awesome. up there. So. Too much to talk about today, probably. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, it, it seems like this is a great launchpad for playing around with the different capabilities, building a custom platform, and uh, just having a tool on hand to really reduce the, the undifferentiated, heavy, undifferentiated heavy lifting. That, that word can be hard to say sometimes. <laughs> but we love saying it. I, I'm, I'm just still amazed by how... When we see these kinds of AI services combined, how they really are more than the sum of the parts, right? Because you, you, you use them all in isolation. Let's say, okay, well, we've done audio, you know, extracting speech from audio files. Uh, we've done translation before. Uh, we've done image detection before. We've done labeling before. But it just really brings it all together in one place.
1: Yeah, that that's definitely one of the key messages I would get out through this session is... A lot of times the, the most interesting thing to find, like for instance, if you're looking for something in a piece of content like the news for instance, maybe the audio is the right way. You really need to think about the problem from a machine learning perspective and decouple it into the exact things that make it easier. Like I, I, I often say use the thing that makes it easiest to find the, 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 what you're looking for. Um, score, like in sports for instance, looking for hockey like scores, You could train a model to understand what that looks like of the puck going through the net, which is a very challenging machine learning model. Or you could actually do text detection on the uh, scoreboard, which shows you each shot that was attempted. Using all of the different tools at your disposal is, is definitely the right way if you merge all the data together.
2: Awesome. Well, some great insights to close out on. Use the right tool for the right job, but also uh, solve the problem in the easiest way possible. <laughs> don't, don't, don't give yourself more work than is necessary. Yep. Some wise words. Well, Liam, thank you again for joining us. Uh, we have one more session lined up for a demo, and it is Solutions Constructs. Very exciting stuff and recent development with the CDK. Here to tell us a little bit more about Solutions Constructs is Ryan Hayes, Solutions Builder here at AWS.
5: Ryan, thanks for joining us. Yep. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Robert, for uh, having us today. Really appreciate really appreciate the time and uh, looking forward to telling people about uh, what we just came out with here. Awesome. Well, there's lots of
2: solutions in this. We're, we're big on solutions, right? We've got solutions architecture. We've got solutions architects that help people solve that. We're launching solutions constructs today. and And when I think of the word constructs, uh, it rings a bell with CD, uh, CDK constructs, right? So, am I am I putting the pieces together the right way? What What are solutions constructs?
5: Yeah, so solutions constructs is an open source library of well architected patterns that extends the AWS Cloud Development Kit or CDK, like you mentioned. Um, and for folks who aren't too familiar with that, um, you know, thinking about it in the infrastructure rainforest, if you will. On the ground level, we have the uh, Cloud Formation that we all know and love in uh, JSON and YAML formats. And then, kind of moving up, we have the CDK, which kind of provides a level of abstraction above that, uh, lets you programmatically define uh, parts of your infrastructure using programming languages that you're familiar with. And then, uh, you know, on top of that is where AWS Solutions Constructs come in. It's gonna, you know, these are reusable, higher level groupings of CDK constructs. Um, and we also, you know, ship them pre-baked with AWS best practice defaults. And this is really so that developers can focus on building their applications. Uh, and meanwhile, we'll take care of making sure that it's up to par with the architecture and security standards or, you know, best practices on the foundational level.
0: Now, now I understand that one of the principles behind the CDK was that we wanted to meet developers where they are. So maybe they're comfortable in a particular IDE, they like using a particular language, or simply that they prefer the imperative style of, of uh, infrastructure as code versus the declarative style where, where, that you have with YAML or JSON. You know, given that, may, maybe you, can you give us a little bit of background? What was the what was the light bulb moment when you went? Yes, this is what what the customer needs here is solutions construct
5: or. Yeah. So, I mean, going back to that whole kind of comparison bet- between the three kind of infrastructures code options that we now have, uh, AWS, right? So, like, when you're writing out an application or, you know, the infrastructure for an application, let's say you're doing cloud you know, that can get kind of long. Um, obviously we have some ways to mitigate, you know, readability and, you know, kind of the size of those stacks. But when you're dealing with large production size, Or enterprise-grade applications, you know, you could be dealing with you know thousands of lines of YAML or JSON, stuff like that. And so the aha moment for me personally was, you know, going through spinning up a a project, even for the demo that I just put together that we'll be looking at in a little bit, is when you go through and you you know you have your hundred or so lines of TypeScript code and you hit the CDK Synth command and it spits out thousands of lines of CloudFormation you really start to see the value there, you know, both in terms of the amount of technical overhead that you're working with um, and kind of keeping things fresh on the team in terms of like, the code that you're working with. But just you know, everything's so much cleaner. It's, it's a great you know, thing to work with, and it's awesome to have everything kind of in the same IDE.
0: But so I, I just kind of dive a little deeper into that. You, know, you mentioned that you can write something like 100 lines of TypeScript that'll generate thousands of lines of of uh, cloud formation, does that then imply that you are you're operating at a at a consistent level of abstraction, or is it is it the intention that you can kind of switch down and operate at either level whenever you choose?
5: Yeah, that's a great point. So the one thing that we want to emphasize is you know you can use AWS solutions constructs and AWS CDK constructs you know seamlessly in the same project. So when we're speaking in terms of like how much. How much code are you saving using AWS solutions constructs? It's really a kind of a harmony between that and the CDK. So what we really want to message out is you're by grouping together these CDK constructs that you could be using to, you know, kind of whittle down this cloud formation template that you might have. You know, that's helping you further reduce the code that you're working with because instead of defining out each of those constructs um, that you might have to do multiple times, depending on what your team's working on, you can have one go-to pattern that will envelop those and, you know, save you a little bit, a little bit more, you know, coding and time on top of the great advantages the CDK already offers.
2: So when I think about, you know, who's going to be most excited about this, I'm thinking, you know, uh, if I'm trying to rapidly prototype something, again, I, I have this idea of a few different pieces of AWS infrastructure that I want to string together. I don't want to go and write thousands of line of, of cloud formation. If I could just sort of uh, imperatively define that using the CDK, that, that may be a bit quicker. Also, let's say maybe I have this huge application I'm trying to migrate, right? Like maybe if I'm starting from scratch, it will be easier to define all of that infrastructure that I already know very well using something like these solution constructs uh, and In an effort to tie them together, using solutions constructs essentially is going to give me a lot of peace of mind that I'm abiding by best practices for those various CDK constructs as opposed to me sort of stringing them all together myself. Is that sort of the right wavelength here?
5: Yeah, so exactly. Like So when I say we wrap up the CDK constructs and everything, we also include some prescriptive defaults um, so that the user doesn't have to worry too much depending on the use case, of course, with some of the things like security, you know right out of the gate, um, they can really get started with building um, their application and and move quickly in that respect and get get to a prototype we We try to you know include enough prescriptive defaults to the point where it's going to you know kind of give that foundation, but also so that it's not overwhelming and the The other thing that we do is we allow the user to override those defaults as well if something's just not working out. They can go in and obviously put in defaults or settings rather that work best for their business case. So it's a little bit of a balancing act, I think, but um, that's really what we're shooting for there is uh, a little bit of harmony between getting the developer up and running, being able to do rapid prototypes, demos, even anything up to just an actual production application, getting them to that point quicker and making them or enabling them to deliver faster.
2: Yeah, so in terms of level of abstraction, we, 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 you mentioned that this is one level higher essentially than the CDK because it produces CDK uh, code in the end essentially. But let's make this a little more tangible, right? Like what does the developer experience look like to use this then? do We we talked about it, it being directly in where you would write CDK code traditionally. You know, is this available for all languages? Is it, does that it have parity with the languages that the CDK supports? What does it look like as a developer if I wanted to string together service A and service B? How would I get started doing that?
5: Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. And one of the things that we'll touch on exactly that in the demo too, but on the high level, um, you know, you can expect the same developer experience as you would with the CDK. Um, we support TypeScript, Python, Java, C Sharp is coming. That's a language that the CDK currently supports. So we're, we're working towards that as well. Um, but really, you know, if you want to spin up a project, it's pretty much as simple as you can do a CDK init, for instance. That'll give you, that'll spit out an entire, you know, baseline project for you to start working with. But you can really just start with a project folder, install and import the patterns that you'd like to use from your favorite package manager like NPM, PyPy, Maven, and then just declare it and configure any properties just as you would with any kind of normal application. You know, for a lot of use cases, we find that that can just be one TypeScript file. And so it makes everything nice and contained. And then really from that point, once your project's in a good state, you can either deploy it out directly to your AWS account um, and either start using it directly or do some integration testing with it, or you can synthesize it into a CloudFormation template with source code package on the side if that's applicable, if you want to distribute it out to a team or for customers to use. So, Well, now, now that you put
0: it that way, I'm, I'm very excited to see I understand we have a demo, but before we dive into that, uh, I noticed a couple of really good questions coming across in LinkedIn chat. Let me just replay those for you, if that's all right. Sure. So one of these questions is to
3: do with how we evolve the solution construct, uh, the library of solution constructs. Uh, So is there a way for the user community to feed enhancement requests back and and
0: to share their experiences? I I think what this is also getting at is like, let's say a customer has had a particular problem with a, um, that, that has resulted in uh, you know a reusable solution of some sort, can they commit that or propose that?
5: Yeah, so um, we currently so we launched this past Monday. Um, we currently have our uh, all of our code up on GitHub for everyone to see. The real intention here is we want to treat it like a real open source project so um, in terms of you know i guess community contributions is the best way to put it. we you know encourage everyone to Work with a project as they would a normal open source project. So if there's an issue, a bug or something like that, they can handle that through issues on GitHub. And then if they have a a pattern or even just a bug fix or something kind of in between those two lines, uh, we can handle it with the pull requests. So that's kind of what we envision. We, you know, we invite everyone to kind of take the, take the library apart and help us make it better together. And uh, yeah, we definitely, we invite kind of everyone to contribute to that evolving process and really make it something that Helps a lot of developers out. Awesome. And Christopher Dunn from uh, AO.com
0: asks, are solutions constructs like packages for the CDK?
5: Yeah, you can kind of think of it that way. I mean, so you're, at the end of the day, when you're working with them, right, you're going to do an NPM install. Let's say you need a Lambda to S3 kind of interaction. You'll do NPM install, the namespace, and then AWS Lambda to S3. And then you just bring it into your TypeScript file, if that's what you're working with. And it's very just declarative, you know, package-like kind of user interface there.
3: Awesome. Well, I think that's all the questions for now. Should we dive into the demo?
5: That's good to me. Let me uh, go ahead and share my screen over here. So today what we'll be talking about, and as Nick touched on a little bit earlier, we'll be kind of walking through what it's like to build a solution using AWS solutions constructs. And the important thing to note here is we'll also be sprinkling in a little bit of CDK as well. So we'll get kind of the best of both worlds there in terms of how this all kind of comes together for the developer. And so the example that we'll be using today is a uh, serverless image handler architecture. And this is an existing solution that uh, our team has available on aws.amazon.com solutions. Basically, what it does is it's a, in the form of a cloud formation template, and it gives you a image handler API that you can hook up to a web or mobile application that will deliver back optimized images for the device that the customer is using. So an example would be if you have, you know, 4,000 by 4,000 pixel original image, you don't want to be sending that to somebody's, you know, iPhone. It's, you know, it's too big. It's not, you're not going to get a good benefit out of it. So the idea here is you keep those original images in the S3 bucket that the solution provisions for you. And then the web or mobile application will make requests based on kind of the viewport sizing or application sizing that it detects. And the Lambda function will deliver back an optimized image through that API and through the CloudFront distro. Interesting thing here, too, to save the customer a little bit more money is that the CloudFront distribution acts as a caching layer. So, you only have to make that request once. And not that, you know, handling stuff through Lambda is particularly expensive on a one or two time run per day. But, you know, over the course of, you know, a lot of requests and, you know, enterprise scale application, it could get a little expensive. So, it's just one little extra thing that we do to save the customer money there with the existing implementation that we have. But we'll be using this for today. Uh, it's a four service architecture, as you can see. We've got that CloudFront, API Gateway, Lambda, and S3 that we'll be provisioning. And so, like I said, this is the existing implementation. When we're thinking about you know, how to build this in terms of patterns, you know what's the best first step? And so, the easiest way to go about this is let's look at the solutions constructs library and try to take this apart. And so, right now we have uh, about 23 or so, 25 patterns that we can pick from. We're kind of going to put to put this like put a puzzle together from this. So we'll pick the patterns that we can kind of build this same architecture with using the least amount of work. And so that just so happens to be the CloudFront to API to Lambda pattern that we have, and the Lambda to S three pattern that's in the library. And depending on the text size here, you know, you might ask. You know, why can't you use the AWS CloudFront API gateway pattern itself and do some other combination? Really the goal that we're we're trying to focus on here is just doing the, the least amount of code necessary to get us to a viable kind of uh, POC or product here. So this, these two patterns are going to get us there.
2: Yeah, and to, to make that, you know, very direct, like traditionally if you were to try to represent this application directly through the CDK... You would have to, you know, tie each of those four individual pieces of infrastructure together. So you're talking about, let's say, four pieces of, four arbitrary units of code, right? Whereas now we have, you know, these, these, uh, bigger Lego or bricks or puzzle pieces or whatever you want to call them, and you only have to tie two of them together. And you have the, the, the understanding that all of those interconnected entities within the, the start and end of that, of that block are done in, in a well architected manner.
5: Yeah, that's a great point, Nick. You took the words right out of my mouth at that. It's all about, you know, minimizing the amount of CDK constructs that you're putting together and, you know, just saving even more resources in terms of fleshing out your solution. So yeah, great point there. But, um, working through the, working through the demo, right? So we're going to take it, you know, end to end here. We're going to get set up with our project environment. So if we were to open a command line, you know, right now, First thing we would do if we don't already have this done is do quick NPM global install of the AWS CDK because that's what we'll need to do kind of deployment work and uh, we'll, we'll need to be running the CDK to get the benefits of solutions constructs. So if you already have that installed, that's great. We will skip to the next step. And that's to just on the low level, create our project folder. So we'll add a folder to our desktop or wherever we're running this and then we'll jump into it using the cd command and then finally what we're going to do is we're going to run the cdk init command and that i touched on it just a little bit earlier but what that does is it deploys a kind of default or baseline project structure into the location that you just specified in a given language so for this case we'll be using typescript and that will give you you know your default stack it'll even give you a um, kind of empty unit test case to get started with unit testing and integration testing. It's a really good resource to use when you're when you're doing a clean sheet design for your solution. So, like I said, this is the expected outcome for that. Uh, you can see on the, the left-hand side, it'll give you some output in terms of useful commands that you can work with while building your project. Everything from building to deployment is listed out there for you. And then on the right-hand yeah. side, you see that default project structure.
2: Sorry for interrupting. I have a uh, so my chroma key green filter is messing up with your green text on the uh, on the content. So you mentioned that these are <laughs> these are some of the useful commands you can run. I'll just read them off. Uh, so there's npm run build, npm run watch, run test, and then cdk deploy, cdk diff, and cdk synth. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a lot of green in
5: this. Beware now. That's uh, uh, that's on my side. It's yeah, uh, it's no, all no good. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Cool. Yeah. So we're, we're all teed up to start building this. Uh, let's jump right in. So like we mentioned from the chat, right? We're going to need to install a couple of packages. So first things first, we're going to bring in a few AWS CDK packages for API Gateway and Lambda. And basically the reason why we're doing this is because we'll need to configure a couple of things with those two resources beyond the scope of what the, the patterns offer. If you're just using default configuration and if your architecture allows it, you don't need to do this, but this is for this given use case. And then next up, we'll bring in those AWS solutions constructs packages that we showed in the previous slides. So we have our CloudFront API gateway to Lambda as the first and then our Lambda to S3 pattern coming in second. And that takes us through the install. So getting started with the build, um, you know, referencing back that project structure that we just took a look at, in the lib folder, we see a you know solution name dash stack.ts file. This is where the majority of our solution logic is gonna sit. And when when we talked about like that one TypeScript file that we use for everything, this is really gonna be it. So we'll go ahead and flesh this out. Starting with the imports and globals, we'll put those to work. Then we'll uh, define some parameters for our solution, and then we'll actually move forward with putting in the business logic for it. All right, so in kind of a block coding example here, we can see all of the work that we need to do, and it's still only 53 lines to get us you know, from point A to point B. So we'll start with the imports for the solution. We'll bring in those CDK packages that we just installed, and then next up we'll we'll, you know, call those AWS solutions construct patterns that we also installed in the previous step. Moving down into the class, we're going to just define some global variables to keep track of resources because we'll need to call back um, like bucket names and things like that. So it's good to keep track of those. And then next step we have is we're going to start to flesh out our parameters. And so anyone who's familiar with, you know, cloud formation at the low level and then even just AWS solutions knows that, you know, you're going to need to be taking some inputs from the user to determine how the deployment goes or you know, certain features, whether to turn them on and off, stuff like that. So for this solution, what we're going to be kind of trying to collect information on is around, you know, how the customer wants the API to function. So unveiling that part, we're going to be mostly dealing with just uh, cross-origin resource sharing because that's a big deal when it comes to having an API out there. So we're going to ask the customer, you know, do you want to have this enabled, true or false? Depending on their use case, they'll pick that and then um, if they selected true for the second parameter, we'll ask them to specify an origin for the API to whitelist in the header. And they can also specify the wildcard, which will let it kind of loose into the wild so anybody can use it. And so that shores up our parameters and we have our inputs. Now we're ready to start actually building in those patterns and constructs that we talked about. So... Now that we're building, we're in the blue. So first thing we're going to do is set up our Lambda function. That's a key component of this solution. It's going to be doing all the editing of the images. We want to specify the runtime here, uh, where the the source code for that Lambda function is going to sit, as well as some environment variables. So you can see here that we tie back those parameter values to the environment variables here. And then Lambda function will hold on to those and call them as they need and determine the behavior in terms of returning the image and the headers to set. So we've got that set up. We'll add a little bit of magic to the API. Nothing too crazy, but we want to specify binary media types here to make sure that you know, the API doesn't get confused in terms of the content that it's serving back. We're going to be serving back images as binary files, so we need to specify that. And then really where we start to take off is we're going to implement that first pattern, which is going to be the CloudFront to API gateway to Lambda pattern. And as you can see here, it takes about four or five lines of code. All we have to do is go ahead and declare it in our TypeScript file and say we want to deploy the Lambda function, pass in those Lambda function properties, and then pass in the API property that we put in a couple lines above. And the second pattern is going to be that Lambda to S3. And the interesting thing to note here, right, is so we have these two patterns, both kind of with joint joining points on that Lambda function. So what we and what we allow our customers to do is switch on and off kind of those end caps of the pattern, depending on the, you know, depending on the pattern itself. But in this case, we're able to turn off the Lambda function from deploying from the second pattern. And pull in the lambda function from the first pattern so that we can tie those together and have it work in harmony. And last thing, we'll just add some bucket permissions to that pattern. And then the finishing touches will be tying together the uh, source buckets that the lambda is going to be looking for in its whitelist to grab images from. So as you can see here, 53 lines of TypeScript, very readable. It's a great way to define infrastructure. And it shows that nice harmony between solution constructs as well as CDK logic. So everything works
3: together really nicely there. Moving yeah. right along.
0: Absolutely love it. If you can just go back to the, the, the previous slide for one moment. Yep. Uh, sure. I just want to gush over how beautiful this looks because, um, you know, I, I mean, there, there's a time and a place. You know, we, we like to say right tool for the job. But I think one of the things that really impresses me about the CDK is the fact that there's just some things that, that, you know, as much as, as we might like declarative programming styles, um, you know, sometimes there's nothing that can really quite replace the, the clarity of uh, doing it imperatively. Um, and not only that, I mean, one thing I want to point out here, and we didn't, we didn't use this here, but, you know, this imperative style is also much more conducive to conditional branching, right? So you can imagine, like, when you take a, a parameter input, like whether cores is enabled, that maybe you have a slightly different infrastructure. And we can do that here and we can continue to reassemble these, these building blocks that you been demonstrating.
5: Yeah, definitely. I know for one of my personal favorite things about this kind of shift over to the programmatic, you know, defining infrastructure this way is that, you know, as somebody who worked very in depth with cloud formation and some of those other kind of like, I don't want to say markdown, you know, driven languages, but, you know, they're set up like that using JSON as an example, even just, you know, as somebody trying to onboard as a new developer, it's it's very kind of overwhelming to read through and get a good grasp on where the information is going throughout the solution. You know, you can be having those ref tags and everything all over the place. So this is just really nice way of cleaning everything up and making it readable kind of to the masses. And that's another great point too. I mean, it makes it in my like, from what we've kind of seen is it makes it very approachable from an open sourcing perspective as well. So Great, you know, example here is if you build a solution, it kind of inherently is extensible, right? So you could, you know, use that as part of a bigger solution because it's kind of all just levels of abstraction. So you could kind of open source what you build and it's very approachable to the open source community. And, uh, yeah, just really nice overall.
0: Yeah. And just to riff on that, I mean, that's kind of the other advantage of having, uh, really concise infrastructure as code is that, you know, you probably all heard the term code is written to be read and incidentally to be executed. And uh, I think we really have to take into consideration when this is, when this is how we define production infrastructure, this is itself a living document designed to be read, right? And the, the more, the more clearly it, it communicates the underlying intent The better off we all are, because let's say, you know, you, you wrote one of these and I'm reviewing it. If my, if the intention of the review is for me to catch errors, like, hey, is this thing actually correctly configured? Does this have minimally scoped permissions? It's much easier for me to do that in a concise way rather than kind of what you were referring to, which is if I have them, you know, if this is going to, I hope we're going to get, get a chance to look at the, the resulting CloudFormation doc and we can let the viewer decide for themselves, which one would you rather review? Right. So I think that's another interesting element to what this enables.
5: Yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah. I think that it's an underrated sort of optimization, right? Like I know we all talk about readability or, or, but like trying to understand something like intent here is is extremely important. I mean, also if your application, if your architecture is going to evolve over time, you don't want to go into that thousand line sheet of cloud formation and make all your edits directly in line there. Like that's going to be a nightmare. Now, you know, Some people may have preference or may may be very familiar with that. But I think that, like, if we're talking about pure efficiency here, the ability to simply change a few lines or add just a few lines to an existing, here we have a TypeScript file or or script, essentially, that's just going to run and we can add or modify those at a single line. And that will do all the downstream changes when it synthesizes the the resulting CloudFormation code. So
5: exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, the other the other great point, so we, we touched on, you know, prescriptive defaults, you know, kind of with any level of abstraction, you're going to have a little bit of, you know, stuff kind of sitting under the hood. And I think that the, the workflow here, you know, Robert, you mentioned doing like code reviews and you know, stuff like that. I think that the way that it's set up is, you know, even if you had to override a best practice property or something like that, you're going to see it in the TypeScript file. So, I mean, everything is spelled out here and it's, um, you know, it's all it's all right in front of you. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's another great kind of add-on benefit for a lot of development teams there is they can see in plain sight what's being overrided in terms of the prescriptive guidance that we're delivering and uh, just have, have all the cards on the table right there.
2: So, we've got uh, one question from a very patient viewer in Twitch chat, uh, Werner G., is wondering, are there any plans to integrate this or, or offer implementations with something like Terraform? I understand that, you know, CDK built on top of CloudFormation and, and, you know, above the CDK now we have solutions constructs. Is there, to your understanding, any sort of plans to implement lower-level primitives that something like a solutions construct would would work with or integrate with?
5: I mean, that's a great question. And I think that, like, you know, we, we love to hear... Kind of the customer feedback around what they're looking for so i think that uh, you know like you said we are we are pretty tied in with the cdk but depending on what our options are kind of moving forward that you know we're we're always happy to develop uh things that help the customer uh, you know, reduce the amount of code that they're working with and all that all that good stuff so um yeah i mean i think in terms of short-term roadmap where that that's not immediately on there but i think that um you know that would be something cool to kind of see know, down the road, longer term, definitely. Awesome. We'll go ahead and finish this build out. If there's no other questions, Nick, do you have anything else there or no green light? Yeah, keep going. Awesome. Okay. So we have all of this beautiful infrastructure here. Now what we're going to do is, so we talked about setting up that Lambda function, we need to actually provide the source code for um, and you can see here kind of on line 27, we specify where that's going to be sitting in respect to our project. So all we have to do is drag and drop that source code folder into where the Lambda function is expecting to find it. And then the CDK takes care of packaging that all up when it comes time to deploy. Brand, if you are building a solution from scratch, you'll have to actually build the, the code in there or build it separately and then merge it in but really easy to reference between the, you know, where, the, where the source code is sitting and tying it up with the Lambda function that's going to be consuming it.
3: Yeah. You know, it occurs to me that we can, with this kind of recipe,
0: we can have, you know, we've talked a long time about how we, there's usually these impedance mismatches where you have to write the front end in JavaScript and the back end is in Perl or PHP or what have you. Uh, I mean, with the, the rise of Node.js, we've seen a lot more JavaScript backends, but now we have the trifecta. We have the front-end, back-end, and infrastructure all in a single language. Right? And not necessarily, not necessarily JavaScript. You can do this
5: with, uh, with C Sharp, I and mean, then I, I understand C Sharp supports coming to the CD conference as well. But that's just really cool. Yeah, we, we love having it. Like I said, everything in the same IDE, just, it's so much nicer that way. Yeah, so that brings us to the fourth and final step of our solutions development journey, which is uh, you have two options, right? So, you are, are solutions ready for testing or deployment, depending on what stage you're in? We can either run CDK deploy or CDK synth on it to kind of take it further. CDK deploy will deploy that stack that you just created into your account using CloudFormation. You don't really see it too much, but it's basically just pushing a CloudFormation stack or a change set if you already have something up there into your account, and it's provisioning those resources for you. And then on the flip side, we have CDK Synth, which will do the local CloudFormation packaging for you. It'll bundle up your template, and it'll also bundle up any source code associated with it so that you have a nice distributable kind of set of artifacts to either pass on to other people or kind of productize even. So that's, that's really the final step there. And then moving ahead. So Nick, I know you wanted to see the, the the ending JSON template. I really tried. I couldn't like squeeze it into the slide in a way that would be attractive enough for presentation use. But I did count the line numbers. So like I said, we have 53 lines of AWS solutions constructs and CDK code working in harmony in TypeScript. That translates... You know, using kind of a similar approach with, you know, just defining everything as CDK constructs, it's about 215 lines, depending on how you choose to do that, all the setup and everything. And then that also brings us up to 1038. I think that's the number there. Well, yeah, 1038 lines of JSON. So as you can see, the difference between the JSON and the CDK is massive. But then when you bring in the solutions constructs, it takes us just that extra mile where we can really, you know, keep whittling down and making our code a lot more manageable from the from the kind of original JSON and YAML formats that we're used to seeing.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. After seeing numbers like these, it's no wonder why there's so much interest and support for the CDK. And I think the the fact that the solution construct just furthers that trend is uh, is the right path for sure. Yeah,
2: definitely. yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna reference uh. Richard Boyd, who is on our show presenting Code Artifact a few weeks back, but he 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 had a tweet the other day where he said something along the lines of uh, he had created this new solution and made, it, it has similar value proposition that it, it reduced the work from this big amount to this smaller amount. And the first question he got when when someone saw it was like, well, why isn't it one? Why is not it only one step? Why is it not only one line of code? And it's like, I, hey, I'll take those questions every day, right? Like we'll, we'll grapple with the the hard problems of how... We can try and make that possible. But in the meantime, I think it is nice to look back and see what was uh, yesterday and and what is possible today, you know, with solutions constructs. So, uh, some very exciting numbers there. I'm, I'm, I was a math major in college. I see numbers. I see graphs. You're, you're barking up the right tree.
5: (laughs) Yeah. That's that, like I said, that's what, that's what I personally love about working with the, with the frameworks. And it's just, it's really nice to have everything clear, concise, readable for everyone involved. So. Huge benefit there. Um, on the flip side, this is, this is not so
0: good for you if you work at a company that measures your output by lines of code. Yeah.
5: <laughs> now we need to figure out some new metrics, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'll have that. It's, a, it's, all, a, it's all a zero-sum game or whatever they call it. <laughs> just
0: actually, you know, no, you know what?
5: I take that back. I take that back. You know what you
0: can do? You can just write, run CDK synth and check in the CloudFormation template and get the credit for <laughs> just writing a far fewer lines of code.
2: There you go, Rob. That's malicious compliance at its best. Oh, no. Come
0: <laughs> on. I don't know, compliance, who knows you're
2: running it? <laughs> va- va- value driven, value driven. Yes. Work,
3: uh, <laughs>
5: work smarter, not harder is the, exactly. is the mantra. Yeah, just wrapping up here. So the, the key takeaways really, we export all of these really well. But, you know, for, for the customer, really, of any kind of, you know, if you're, you know, super technical and you love your infrastructure versus if you're someone just kind of spinning up and, Kind of entering the world and doing smaller scale projects, super low barriers to entry. We talked about faster development, easy maintenance, onboarding comes with that. If you're starting up a, a new team or you know, bringing on new resources, very easy to get them up to speed with the with the stuff you've been working on. Reusable code you can extend the solutions that you write infinitely. Use them as part of kind of bigger pieces to bigger puzzles, if you will, and then. The testing is one thing that I just love so much about working, you know, with these frameworks is, you know, cloud formation and kind of those lower level products don't really give you a lot of opportunity to do automated testing on the resources that you're provisioning or kind of what to expect out of a stack. You can really start to bake that in with the CDK. We'd love to kind of have that extra level of assurance as we're developing Applications and infrastructure. It's really nice to have an extra little checkbox as we're running through the pipeline there. Super easy to c- create well architected applications. Like we mentioned, everything comes with AWS best practice defaults, which you can, of course, override if they, you know, if they get in your way. And then frictionless ramp up. So, I mean, everything in the same IDE, no new languages or anything to learn and um, write everything. And as, as you mentioned, Robert, the, the trifecta there of javascript and if you're a you node.js know, developer have everything in one language so.
3: music to my ears
5: <laughs> yep <laughs> <laughs> definitely i think that's all i got demo wise for everyone today yeah like i said we uh we we just released out on monday with the ga version so uh we've got our github up there we love everyone to kind of we encourage everyone in the community to, uh, go up there, take everything apart. If you see anything, you know, PRs, issues, we're always on there. Um, so yeah, definitely super excited to hear feedback from the community and customers to make this a great product. Keep iterating on it.
2: Yeah. And Ryan, I, I know it should kind of go without saying, given that the GitHub link is right there. We've mentioned it's open source. So we've, we've showed it off, but. Some people were asking earlier in the stream, you know, how much does this cost? Like, I I, I like the efficiency here, but you know, what's it going to cost me? And I know I joked the other day, but uh, it sounds like it's the nice low cost of free ninety nine, right? It's absolutely (laughs) free. You go into GitHub, you clone it yourself, and go to town, right?
5: Yeah, I mean that's exactly. I love that saying too. Um, Yeah, it's it's similar to the CDK. It's totally free to pull down, play with. You only pay for the services that you provision once you uh, spin that up into the cloud. So. That's the, uh, that's the pricing model there, if you will.
3: Awesome. Well, uh, usually we end on how you get
2: started, but you so graciously did that for us. We've had lots of questions along the way. We've got them answered. Someone was wondering what your IDE was before. I'm pretty sure it was visual studio
5: code, right? Yep. Visual studio.
2: Cool. And one last statement (laughs) we were joking before about, you know, lines of code as a performance metric. Uh, Werner putting it very eloquently, it's, it's all about time to value, right? That's, that should be the important metric, whether you're delivering software uh, or, or beyond, you know. Re- making that more effective, I think, is is something that would be a, a, a continuity across all AWS services. Reduce the time to value. So, awesome. Well, uh, Ryan, I know third up on the day today, but uh, you were a trooper and you stuck in there. And demo was awesome. I'm excited to start using solutions constructs. So, uh, you may have covered this before, but how many are available currently?
5: I we have about twenty five out there right now getting started. So uh like like I said, the goal was to keep kind of building that out, um, using kind of what we're seeing internally as, you know, commonly used interactions. We have a good kind of gauge of that. As well as, you know, whatever the customers uh are saying in terms of, you know, a lot of people say we need a certain uh kind of grouping of constructs, you know, we'll be more than happy to either build it or, you know, work together to achieve that. So yeah, we're really excited about it and uh you know love to to the feedback on
3: it awesome
0: an idea occurs to me we usually do that that silly segment at the end where we try to combine all of the service announcements and the demos into one thing since ryan's been such an awesome sport and uh has gone last here ryan if you're game for this you want to join us for this silly little exercise at the end of every episode sure let's do it (laughs) okay nick you want to set it up yeah so the
2: rules of engagement here are are simple Every episode, we go and we look at each of the three launches we've had, or the number of launches because sometimes it's not three. And we try to think of the dream the customer whose dream episode this would be. You know, like, oh, I'm going to go build an application that uses A and B and C, and and there has you have to come up with some way to string them together. So it's a little bit uh, of an interesting game. But let's uh, let's just recap again for everyone who's tuning back in now, and it's been a long episode. So we had uh, Honeycode a no-code solution to building applications uh, from end-to-end with permissioning and, you know, nice and simple no-code solution tool. Second, we had new media analysis features for recognition video. So things like black bar detection, figuring out where we want to inject ads, stuff like that. And then here we have solutions constructs. So Rob, I don't know how you want to do this. Maybe I I feel bad making Ryan go first unless he wants to do, do something with solutions construct yeah, yeah yeah that would no,
0: be we, cool. you don't even have to go first i i think i think it was just you know we we don't want to put you on the spot here it is but but if you want to think of it the approach is kind of like what if these were the secret ingredients and you're the iron chef
5: yeah uh, so are we talking about target audience here or what, what's the uh we're saying you know you you're, you're building a startup and you got
0: to use all three of these or, or just right. a you know pet project or something like that and i've got a i've got a burning one
3: so if you wanted some time to think about it i can i can go first I think I've I've got a let me uh let me just Yeah, yeah, hit us with it.
5: All right, so here we go. Since the since the recognition is this is gonna be a very media driven go, but I think since you know this is a common platform these days, all the cool kids are using it. Uh TikTok success self-service consulting type of Optimization, I think, is a good one. You can use your your Honey code to build up a little kind of tracking app and then use your recognition to tear apart your videos and then I think it was mentioned earlier actually packaging some of the uh, some of the recognition stuff into and the media stuff into a cloud formation template so we can take it full circle on the infrastructure side with solutions constructs. You 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 just stole the wind right on my sails. Yeah, I mean oh. that's
0: that, that's awesome, right? I mean, I, I think the, the the connection between the the media interface engine was it? I'm, I'm misremembering the acronym. Uh, M- yeah, that kind of right. M yeah, M-I-E, yeah, I E. Mean, yeah, M I E. Right, because that's basically a giant cloud. I mean, I don't I don't want to undersell it. it but part of it, it certainly is a cloud provision template that shows how you can combine all the different AI services to produce this kind of end-to-end media analysis and editing tool. And one of the natural opportunities there, it seems to me, is to take solutions constructs and turn that into something much more concise, something much easier uh, to hack and to review and, and that sort of thing. So there's a natural alignment there between the, the media tools that we talked about today with recognition uh, segmentation and and solutions constructs. Now, with respect to Honeycode, now we, we have to pop up a layer and talk about the application because Honeycode is kind of out there, right? It is, it is not highly integrated with all these different AWS services uh, yet. But so if the artifact of that is, you know, some sort of video production pipeline, we can share that with the team through Honeycode and not everybody has to be technically uh, uh, savvy enough to build one of these applications. They can all see, you know, hey, like, hey, we have the, we have to edit 20 videos by um, 2000 videos by the end of the month. How are we going to do this? What's the status of each one,
5: right? Yeah. Or like idea management, you know, everybody's, they're all purpose driven videos. So, you know, that's a... I I could see the use case for it. It does make it difficult because it's outside of the cloud formation realm. So that's, but I think we could, I think we could make it happen. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I I think another approach I was going to take over on the combination of MIE and uh, solutions constructs was we mentioned a lot about how there are folks that are forking the MIE and then writing their own features for their business use cases. And so something that that appears to me is like, well, the solution construct is going to eventually pile down into, you know, cloud formation template code. You can create those snippets and, and, and essentially, even if you don't port the entire MIE into, you know, solutions, constructs and CDK, you could use that to rapidly prototype new features that will then interface with what is, you know, the CloudFormation based CD, uh, MIE. So a little bit about
0: best of both worlds. Yeah. Love
3: it. <laughs> well,
0: thanks for being a good sport, Ryan. I know we put you on the spot there and uh, you, you nailed it. This came with an awesome
5: idea. Yeah, Nick and Rob, I can't thank you enough for the time today. And uh, yeah, I mean, for everyone out there watching, definitely uh, check out the GitHub and um, love to see your contributions, ideas, feedback, keep iterating on it.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you, Ryan. Uh, This is going to do it for us on episode six. Is it six, Rob? Yeah. Episode six of AWS What's Next. Again, covered three really exciting launches just did the fun little ending segment there where we string them all together. But again, Honeycode, Video Media Analysis Features for Recognition Video, uh, and Solutions Constructs here. So three very different types of launches. Again, we're very excited about them and we're very thankful for the service team members that tuned in or, or rather joined us on the stream to, to show those off and show off those demos. Again, many of these first looks in demo form, often you know, you know accompanying blog posts and uh, some other promotional videos. But wanted to give another big shout out to everyone in the audience who's tuning in from both LinkedIn and on twitch.tv. Thank you again for getting your questions in. We appreciate it immensely. We've been throwing links all throughout the way in chat. So if you're interested in any of those resources, feel free to check those out. But otherwise, we have all eyes ahead on episode seven, which should be in a few weeks. We're toying around with some other ideas right now. We may be coming out with some content before the other three-week cadence. Uh, but just follow along on social media and don't miss any announcements. And we'll be getting all that information to you as it develops. All right. Well, my voice is just about shot. I've got to go drink a bunch of water. Got some other things to do. Otherwise, happy Friday, everybody. Thank you again for tuning into episode six of AWS What's Next. Thank you for making the show so great. And
3: we will see you again back for episode seven. Take it easy and have a great weekend, everyone. All right. See you, everyone.